Hello everybody. Good day. Thanks for coming by. Uh, today is another Merged Worlds Dungeons and Dragons story podcast stream thing. And I am excited to get into sharing the stories with you. Uh, hello Ashley. I'm glad you guys could make it. Um, today we're going to continue our harrowing tale with a little bit of a uh, an interesting sidestep. What does that mean? Hmm, we'll find out in a minute. I'm also going to share with you guys some of the images of the minis that I have been uh, creating lately. I've created all of the children. Um, so I have a mini for them. I, I do want to begin by saying this is what the children will look like as young adults. Uh, because it just doesn't really offer the website I use, Hero Forge, which for the record, not a sponsor, but phenomenal, phenomenal website. Not only can you get in and custom design minis in a million different ways, uh, you can uh, buy them and they'll print them out and send them to you. They'll print them out and send them to you painted already. Or you can, you can just pay a very small amount and they'll send you the file. You can print it out yourself on a 3D printer. Um, and they add new features and weapons or armor or positions or races. They add new stuff weekly. So um, I use Hero Forge to design all my characters so that you guys get to see kind of what I imagine when I'm rating these guys. So we're all kind of seeing the same thing there. Has there always been a voiceover in the music? There was a voiceover in the music? There shouldn't have been. Whoops. <laughs> if there was a voiceover that popped on in the music, it shouldn't have been. Oh! I know what happened. I apologize. I had a second window open. And it probably picked up the microphone. I was finishing up a project and I had a voice going in on that one. It probably picked it up in the microphone. I didn't have it muted. I apologize for that. That's on me. So I didn't realize the mic was hot at that point. So uh, I apologize. That was all my fault. I'm sorry. You would normally won't hear that. <laughs> so if you're listening to this and you hear the voiceover, ignore that. That's a boo-boo. <laughs> sorry. Um, but I've created uh, the minis as well as some other characters that have been introduced in the past. Uh, one of them specifically I'm going to share with you guys today, and I've never shown this to anybody. Um, but he's someone that I introduced a while back who is going to be popping up again in the future. And so it's someone I wanted you guys to be aware of a little bit more. I've only seen him once, but something I want you guys to be aware of. So jumping in on that, again, thank you all for coming. If you have a good time today, it'd be awesome if you click the like button. But if you're new here, whether you're watching it today, tomorrow, or 10 years down the road, it would be awesome if you'd subscribe to the channel. As I quaff my chocolate milkshake and prepare to tell you tales of excitement. All right. So we're going to start off today. I'm going to introduce you guys to the minis first, get that out of the way, and then I can go into the story. But I made them for all of the guys. One of them I realized I forgot to load, so I'll have to pop them up here in a minute. Um, but we're going to start with, uh, we're showing it with you guys all of the children. So we're going to start with Seraph. So this is Seraph Bloodborne. I'm make him a little bit bigger here, probably. So with Seraph, there he is. <laughs> oh, Seraph. So, um, Seraph, uh, the hair, does, he has very cool hair, but straight on, it doesn't look as good. It looks better from the side. Uh, Seraph is more to dress just in leather and clothing because of his speed and such. 
He doesn't really weigh himself down with a lot of armor, but he does have a tougher chest plate. It's not a full metal one, but it does give him a little bit. Um, the sword is nothing, not a particular magic sword or anything of any kind, but it is uh, a new sword that they added I thought looked cool. I wanted to give him a decent one. And he is carrying a flask of uh, there that you probably recognize uh, from one of the mini stories early I had uh, mentioned where uh, Artemis thought he was sick. Turns out he was just hungry and Draven had to take him away from Serenity to teach him what he needed to know to survive. Draven has always had a magical vial of this nature that basically keeps blood alive, keeps it warm uh, and alive. So if he was to drink it, uh, it's just like drinking live blood. It only holds a certain amount, and it still can only hold it for a period of time. But it's something he's had for a very long time that I didn't... Uh, I didn't really... I don't know if I'd ever brought it up in the story, other than the one time where he had Seraph take a sip of it in that exact moment I was telling you guys about a moment ago. Um, but it would stand a reason that he would have one for Seraph as well. If nothing else, he would give Seraph his own. He wants Seraph to be prepared. <laughs> Special juice box. That's a good way to put it, Ashley. <laughs> People juice. Uh, but yes, that is um, that flask. As for the scroll on the ground, when I create these characters, I try to put something of importance or something symbolic of them or their class or something down there. Sometimes they can be hints to stories. Sometimes uh, they can just be funny callbacks. Um... There's a scroll down there. Eventually, the scroll will be important. Now, could be that the scroll is the uh, prophecy, per se. Maybe that's what it is. Mm, or it could be something different. But that is a scroll that's down there. No, I'm not going to tell you what it is. <clears throat> Yay. So that's Seraph. There's our boy Deacon. Uh, you know, young Deacon. Again, as a young adult. Black and red are the colors of Fire Moon. If you look up Ray Fire Moon's uh, mini on the uh, my website, onlydraven.com. There's a tab called Characters. I have all these minis up there posted. <clears throat> I have all these guys up there now, too. Black and red has always been the uh, colors of Rafe Firemoon, so it would stand to reason that when he's given armor by his parents, because that's where you're going to get it from normally, is from your kingdom, it would be of the same color. He's a sword and shield user. His shield is on his back because he's also a spellcaster. Remember, he's training in that. He's primarily a warrior, He's basically a dual class without some of the restrictions, and we'll find out why later in the story. But um, the books on the ground, of course, symbolize the learning and the education side, as well as the spell in his hand. Uh, for anybody who's listened to this story so far, a few episodes, the man in the hat popped up, so the uh, lower glass probably means something a little bit more for those people who've been following the story. In fact, if you go through and look at the miniatures that I've picked up over the last couple of years, you'll notice a theme there, that anytime somebody had an hourglass, something important that had to do with time would be for their character. And not many people really picked up on that. But again, sometimes I like to throw little hints and stuff in there uh, of the future or special stuff. This is one that particularly turned out well, and uh, I've got a lot of compliments on this one. Maeve Fohammer. So that is what the paladin for Zorn, the god of truth, looks like. Uh, it's very close to what Weston is wearing. There's some minor differences, because I would assume being a minotaur, she would have some custom pieces. The boots are a little bit different um, and such. But overall, it's the uh, same style as what he wears, same shoulders, things like that. She does not wear a helm because of the horns and things. 
so she has just a, a kind of dais symbolic thing on her forehead. And she uses a large two-handed sword, so it's a great sword. Um, I mentioned in earlier part that her father had scoured the land to find the perfect one for her, and that would be it. Uh, other than she's a minotaur and likes to drink, there wasn't anything really special I could find that was available to put down at the base. So the uh, tanker does not mean she's an alcoholic. <laughs> it's just something that shows up a lot in the minotaur characters uh, because I think it's kind of fun. All right, next is the other one that I think turned out particularly well. <clears throat> Petal Uthwalen. <clears throat> so Petal is, of course, our little half-kender mage. Uh, is, of course... Spellcaster. She's going with the blue and gold colors. Um, sometimes the colors of robes matter, and sometimes they don't. There are a lot of different um, mage organizations. Hello, Amy. Good day. <laughs> Your favorite one, Ashley. Um, there are a lot of different mage organizations in Merged Worlds. And the main one we deal with the most is, of course, the Brotherhood of Magic, <clears throat> which is the Mage Tower and Pax Wall, Serenity, uh, and so on. Uh, so, in those, their hierarchy specifically, there's no specific mage colors, although sometimes you'll find that mages with specific specialties will kind of lean towards certain colors. Um, Petal, not so much. Petal's a wild mage, so she's got a little bit more freedom to go there. Catch you do on episode 30, so I'd pop in and boost you up. Oh, I appreciate that, Amy. I'm glad you're listening to it. You have to... If you get a chance, shoot me a message on Discord if you have any questions or or uh, anything special you'd like to bring up. Man, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, especially as a fresh person going through. Uh, Michael just went through the whole series here recently and just got caught up and left comments and message a lot. It was awesome to, to hear that interaction. So I'd love to hear from you uh, as you're going through it. Uh, but Petal is there. Um, again, books, symbolic of learning. As a kender, half-kender, she still has the wanderlust uh, that's going to... Uh, grab her like kenders normally have, which is kind of what the, the bedroll is symbolizing, that need to go out and explore the world. Um, and she got a little spell book on her side. She There is no hoopack, so I can't give her a hoopack. I would assume over time she's going to move from a hoopack to a magical staff of some kind anyways. Being a mage, making a magic hoopack, she's not really going to be a hoopack fighter, although she technically can. I'm allowing it for the class in this situation because it's a kender weapon specifically. And a hoopack, not overwhelmingly different than a staff for bonking purposes, has the sling and the blow dart part, but overall, not big difference there. So that's Petal, and I think she turned out really well. The hardest one for me to put together was Artist because there was no gold and silver cloth to match her to Maeve because they both worship the same god. So I needed to make sure that clerics of Zorn were symbolic. Uh, so you know them from seeing them. So Zorn, I decided to go with a red and gold coloring, which is a combo I don't really have anywhere else. Um, so Ardis, of course, holding her holy symbol and a morning star, much like her mother, uh, same weapon, wears uh, a tabarded padded armor. Unlike a lot of clerics who are required to wear robes to symbolize, uh, clerics of truth, clerics of war. There are a few exceptions that can wear some armor. So she wears padded armor, which does offer more protection than just regular clothes or robe, but still gives her the freedom to be able to cast spells and things and move uh, that would be needed for the spell casting. So she can bonk or cast. 
Uh, I gave her a very basic little gold mini crown because she is a princess after all. Uh, the gem in the center of that is purple because Mercy's color has always been purple uh, and it's become the main color of um, Serenity. Hey, Seleucius, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, but I wanted to have something purple on there to represent because, again, when they had a crown made for her, they may not have known she was going to be a cleric at that point, right? So she has got the... Uh, the purple gem symbolizing Serenity's crown. After that is another one I really like, and that is Ran. Ran looks a lot like his father, Quan. Remember, Quan is Quan's last name. His name is Qian Quan, but he goes by Quan. Ran goes by Ran. Um, armor is very much like his father's, same as his sword hairstyle. He idolizes his father's, right? So it's uh, something that he would want to be like his father. He's trying... So that's... I, I specifically made him look a lot like El, uh, Elder Quan. Um, uh, the only things I changed a little bit were um, a little bit of the facial structure. I changed a little bit of the buckles from the uh, silver color that Elder Quan wears to a more of a bronze color. Um, and I matched the, the hilt of his sword to the bronze instead of the more silvery steel color of his dad's. Just a little bit of a difference there to set him apart. Uh, he's got a little scroll case on the side. Why? Who knows? Traveling pouch. Most characters have something like that. Uh, one big thing about Ran for his character is, well, Quan, of course, Elder Quan, serves respect, honor. He, he, mercy is the type of person he was looking to to follow. He's looking for a lord. He's always, he's a, he's a warrior who serves. Um, and so he tries to raise his son Ran to take over, although Ran, which I've tried to hint at a little bit in the stories, and hopefully you guys have picked up on that, he is taking it a little bit more seriously, more from a servitude point of view. Um, and his father might not quite realize that. Uh, so he's, they've offered the option to have a character on his knees. So to me, uh, Bran is always someone who is looking to serve, uh, but in a slightly different way, you know, more of a, um, I'm looking for the opportunity to jump in front of the bullet instead of I'm here to help you. And if I have to, I'll jump in front of the bullet. So that's going to be uh, some trials he's going to have to deal with as a character as his story goes on. Uh, and then we have little Miss Dina. Dina, which is Seraph's uh, love interest in the story. Uh, Dina the flower girl. Uh, not She doesn't have a last name. I probably need to make one. <laughs> but, um, so, um, yeah. Dina, of course, uh, just dressed away. She works in the herbalist shop. So those different perfumes and elixirs and things on the ground that she works in her grandma's herbalist shop. Works for her, uh, also grandfather helps him in his leather cobbler business. Uh, but mostly she goes around and sells the flowers. I gave her uh, jewelry of like feathers and s silver and steel because she's of common. She wouldn't have a lot of gold and such. I, w I wanted to kind of, she has the classic bronze buckle on her little belt. Um, a lot of times you'll notice that, especially bronze is one of the easier metals to get a hold of um, in a lot of the uh, older medieval style stories and even in our own history. So a lot of times you'll, one thing that's easy to notice someone's more of a common descent is if they're wearing copper or bronze instead of steel or gold or silver. So uh, I do try to symbolize that a lot in the characters. Uh, the more expensive or the more, sorry, the more wealthy characters, the princes, the princesses, uh, even some of the thieves who steal will have large jeweled rings and big flashy jeweled earrings or gold earrings and things. 
or else I try to make the common character, common person, have still things that would flare, but would be more along the lines of, of their lifestyle. So that's Dina. And the other one I'm going to show you, you're going to have to bear with me just a second, because I realized I forgot to preload this one. So give me just a second. Let's see. This one's a little bit different, because this is not one of the children. Now, this is a character that popped up one time in the past. Uh, but he's someone I need to touch upon with you guys so that you'll be aware. Ventolio. Ventolio the Thorn. So there was a point when Mercy and all the heroes were about to start marching west to go fight the Emperor. You may remember. They were going to go fight the Emperor and take him out in the tower and half the... Half the heroes and their minions went with them, and they were a small army marching across the land. Before they left, a man just kind of appeared in Mercy's castle, and she was ready to squish him. But he introduced himself as Ventolio and said that he was a thorn of the rose, which means he is a general or high-ranking member of the Thieves' Guild serving under the Black Rose. The Black Rose being the head of the Thieves' Guild, which no one knows who that is. No one's seen them, they believe. Um, but Ventolio is one... If you're a thorn, they're one of the few people who knows who the Black Rose really is. Um, and that's not to say that the Black Rose is anybody we've ever met. I'm just saying they know who that person is. It could be an innkeeper. It could be you know, someone who has a you know, double life like that. Or someone they know. A regular city guard or a friend. You, know, you never know. Um, but Ventolio is one of the thorns. Uh, Mercy has learned over the time that there are more than one of the thorns. She does not know whom, how many or who any of the other ones are. Um, he's the only one that's came to her by name because he arrived and said, while you are gone, the Black Rose is going to help protect the kingdom. That's something that's going to be done. Uh, because this is, she views it, the Black Rose reviews this as her kingdom. Mercy just happens to live there, you know. Uh, the Black Rose, this is her land. Um, and so she rules a lot of what the underground stuff, all of it, really. She's, she is not a merciful person. So, uh, but she does not tolerate any type of um, violence against children. Does not allow that anywhere in Serenity, which I've hopefully got that point across through some of the mini stories where she's been introduced or you know been talked about. But Ventolio is a rogue. Uh, very swashbuckler, rapier kind of guy. Uh, it looks it sort of looks thicker than a rapier, and that's because 3D printing it has to be. But he uses a rapier, the very thin, classic rapier. Uh, very swashbucklery kind of rogue. Um, but also, like, very deadly. Like, you are not a thorn unless, A, the rose believes they can trust you, and B, you're capable of doing what the rose needs. Uh, it's the thorns that give out most of the information or commands to anyone lower rank in the Thieves' Guild. Most Thieves have never met the Black Rose. Um, to meet the Black Rose means either you're about to become a thorn, or you're about to die. One of those two things. You know what I mean? And it is, it is, it is known that if the Black Rose comes to deal with you herself, because you, you screwed up, uh, it's not going to be a pleasant way to go. Any opportunity she has to make an example out of someone for the rest, she will do so. But Ventolio uh, is the only thorn that has actually been introduced so far that you know of. 
Um, <laughs> but uh, I wanted to bring him in and give it what he looks like because he uh, he will be popping up more in the future as Serenity's story now that the city's getting bigger and it's continuing. The Thieves Guild, I've hinted at, hopefully you guys have picked up that the Thieves Guild is becoming a little bit more of a bigger problem for Mercy as time is going on. And it can only be assumed that at some point that's going to come to a head. Right? So, where we are in the story, right? Let's get into that now. Do I have more miniatures painted? Oh, yes. I have four more miniatures painted of characters you've never met yet. One of them, I cannot tell you how excited I am to bring that character. I know I keep talking about it, but I, he, he is very quickly becoming my second favorite character after the man in the hat. I think I like him even a little bit more than, than Draven at this point. Like, I really think you guys are going to like him. But anyways, where we're in the story... Again, uh, heroes heard of a city that was asking, offering great sums of reward to anyone who could come and help with the drow problem. There were drow that were attacking caravans and uh, homesteads and farms in the area, um, which started first as just theft, has resulted up into large-scale killing of the regular folk. Um, the drow are unwilling to bargain or deal with the humans to try to, hey, we'll sell you stuff or make trade, but they just end up taking it. So a uh, word has gone far and wide. Um, another hunter, undead hunter, came through named uh, Aaron, uh, who mentioned he was going up that way. That's how Dandy found out about it. Uh, Dandy, of course, always hunting for drow as well as undead. They've headed that way. Went through a small adventure in a town that was or an, an old farming area where everyone was dead, but was uh, unfortunately by a giant automated robot. Managed to defeat that with the help of a young mage that they picked up in a tower who'd been in a magical suspended animation uh, named Fia. Uh, Fia has joined the party. I can't remember if I told you guys how old Fia was, but she's like late teens. So she's considerably younger than the rest of the characters at this point. All of our characters at this point are well into their mid to late 30s. Um, I mean, think about Seraphis 16, 17. Right? And they traveled the world and adventured for three or four years before that. They were around 18, 17 when they started. So they're, they're definitely in their mid to late 30s at this point. They are aging, as is everyone except for artists. <laughs> I mean, Artemis, of course, who doesn't look a darn day later. You know that's got to rib some of the other characters, right? Like, wow, you look the same as I met you. Look at the bags under my eyes. My There's got to be a poke to be a friend with an elf when you can see yourself aging, and they're not. To Artemis, it's been but a day of her life, everything that they've done so far. But they were traveling, and they got through that, and they made it to a small village that was only uh, a week or so away from the city that they were going to, a city named Star's Rest. Um, while there, they were offered a job by a guy named Willem. Uh, Willem uh, said that he uh, was guarding a caravan that was uh, meant to arrive here, it was going to get here, then he and his people were going to guard it the rest of the way because of the drow attacks. Um, these people, you know, our heroes had mentioned they're headed that way because they'd heard of the drow issue. They didn't quite say who they were. They're not lying about their names, but they're not saying, Hi, I'm a queen. She's a high cleric. He's a, you know, merchant lord of the oceans, Darstobian. He's trying to leave that behind. We're just traveling through. We heard of the problems. We're going up to see if we can help in any ways. So he's like, Hey, we're going that way too. Want to make a little bit of money? You come with us, help protect the caravan. That might get you in good when you get up there, right? Because if you're looking to hire people, you've already worked for the city, kind of, by helping a caravan get there. 
good word. But they, they agreed. The caravan was going to be there in four days. So they had a little bit of time to kind of hang around the, the little village. Uh, it was a small town. had an inn and stuff. Um, and they had plenty of money. So they said, yeah, we'll, we'll stay around for a couple days. Even though they're eager to get there. Uh, what he said really rang true. Yeah, this is a good opportunity for us to show we are mercenaries looking to help by, ooh, a job for more money? Yeah, we'll take that. That's what a mercenary would do, right? I'm going towards the city to help take care of this drow problem. I can make some bank on the way, and I was going to go there anyways, right? So, typical behavior. The one person that throws off any of the, hey, we're all hardcore mercenaries, is, of course, Artemis, who does not hide the fact that she's a cleric of healing. But if she plays off, you know, these mer- these are good mercenaries who are out to, you know, rid the word of world of evil, so I'm part of them because of that. That's kind of the angle they're playing. And of course, remember, Percy, her Templar, is still there. He's wearing Templar armor and gear, but he's not wearing any of the actual Serenity specific. He's wearing generic Templar of healing kind of stuff. They're not, they're not trying to blatantly post that they're from Serenity. Even though it's taken weeks and weeks and weeks to get here, there's the chance that this place has at least heard of Serenity, right? So they're going to hang out four days waiting for the caravan to arrive, and then they're going to help Willem escort it the rest of the way. Willem is excited by this. He says, excellent. He goes off on his way. He said, four days, I'll come get you. We'll be good to go. He's staying in the inn as well, so they'll see him on occasion. So the first day, first evening, they're just hanging out there, getting the information. They talk with Willem. All of that stuff happens. They crash out for the night. The next day, they decide to go about the town a little bit. Look in some of the stores, make a couple of purchases. Again, these people are very wealthy. So going into a place and buying things is a great way to get people talking. You know, store owners and merchants and such are more likely to to chat you up if you're buying things. The longer you're there talking to me, the more stuff I might buy. Keep talking and tell me, answer my questions. They buy stuff a lot of times that they don't need, but that they can toss in the chest of holding just in case, you know. It's more of a way of getting in good with the people around. And that's kind of their angle here. They go around a couple of stores, pick up some basic supplies. Sadly, no barrels of pickled fish here, but they have two, so they're good. Um, They are looking around. Darsh was able to get a meat pie. Very happy about it. He prefers dessert pies, but meat pies are also delicious. And they talk to some of the blacksmiths, and some of the other travel, the other merchant stores, and it's all the same kind of thing. The drow issues really haven't gotten this far. Uh, they have not been attacked at any time. But yes, caravans between here and Stars Reach have been attacked on several occasions. Um, and Warren or, or, um, is no known. My goodness, uh, is known or Willem? Sorry, Willem is known for. Uh, having fought off several drow attacks at this point, and so his services are relatively in demand because he's been successful, him and his people. So he makes he's able to charge a bit more, but he's able to you know, back up what he says. And he's known to be, he stop here regularly. No one has an unkind thing to say about him. Um, so let's see. After that... There we go. Um, so they're just kind of bumbling around finding out that Star's Reach has been having the problem for multiple months. All the, Just kind of reaffirming all the stuff. Asking around, no one in this village uh, has said that anyone matching Aaron's um, 
appearances come through here, but that's not uncommon. You know, the route they took may have been a very different route he took. They did mention he was looking to meet some people when he got up here, so he may have gone a different way. Um, Dandy's hoping to meet up with him again, A, because it may be helpful to have someone she can trust in the group, uh, help help them out, of course, with him being another hunter. Um, but B, the second one thing is, is they would like to get to him and be like, hey, it would be awesome if you didn't tell everybody who we really are. You know what I mean? It would be great. We'll slide you a little bit of gold. I know that's why you're here. If you could just keep who we are on the down low, we would appreciate that. Because when he left, their plan wasn't fully concocted of what they were going to do. So they didn't get a chance to ask him that ahead of time. So that's one of the reasons they're, they're asking for him every time they go to a place. And they will continue to do that until they, they catch up with him, of course. The second guy, like I said, other than just a little bit of recon, information, relaxing, which is nice. They get a chance to get a hot bath and stuff. Um, after weeks of travel, it's nice to sleep in a bed, rest, get some real hot food and drink and things. Um, it's basically having a, a, a bit of a restful day. And it is mid-afternoon in the inn when they're eating some dinner when they are approached by a man. Um, one quick second. Sorry, I told my wife something. Um, but, uh, yes, so this gentleman uh, shows up, a rather proper gentleman, not fancy, fancy guy, so it looks like a regular Joe, and introduces himself as the mayor of this small town. Really calls himself the constable. He just kind of helped oversee the town. He's not like an elected official as much. He's been uh, just kind of found himself in the role one day, and people help pay him to help people take care of things. The town has some city guard, like anyone else. Um, so he's kind of in charge of that stuff. If anything else, he's more of like a... What's the word I'm looking for? A reserves, the head of the reserves, called up only when things are really needed. Somebody gets drunk in the bar, somebody comes through town causing problems, brigands in the area, stuff like that. But he's heard that the uh, characters are in, in town and that they've signed on with uh, Willem. And uh, he introduces himself. Uh, his name is Mark. He's like, hi. I know odd name. His name is Mark. Mark. And he's like, hey, I'm sorry to bother you all. I appreciate you all staying in town. You're even you know, kind of being friendly with everybody, and that's awesome. Also heard you're going to be here for a few days. That your mercenaries that have signed on with Good Willem uh, to help him guard one of the caravans. And he's like, yeah. yeah. I mean, we're heading up to Star's Rest anyways. We heard that there was... Uh, some trouble going on up there and that they were paying well to get it solved and uh, it's kind of right up our alley so yeah we're heading up that way figured uh, we could use a couple days rest to make a few extra coin working for Willem on our way up there and he's like excellent excellent well I'm sure well I'm sure that'll be appreciated um I will tell you though I didn't want to ask you uh, something see if you might be interested here in town we're actually experiencing a small issue ourselves um Nothing huge, nothing big, but uh, something that you, maybe you, you might be interested in making a little... You're going to be here a few days anyways. This might be something uh, really quick and easy for you guys to take care of that we could use some help with. And uh, we might be able to pay you for those services. Our heroes are like, well, you know, in the back of their mind, they give that, each other a look like, you know, we're really not here to take on every job in the area, but at the same time, we have to at least act like we're entertaining it. And like, well, you know, maybe, I guess, we definitely don't want to miss our chance to catch up with Willem, the, you know, not to, nothing to 
be offended here, but uh, you know, the big the big money is helping the, the stars reach. So we're heading that way. And he's like, oh no, I understand. And definitely, what, what I'm what we're proposing shouldn't take you folks or yourself very long at all, especially looking at Darsh, especially with the uh, assets you have available. Uh, this might be something pretty quick. Like, well, what, what you got going on? Like, well, we've had some issues. There's a small lake to the west of here, not far, just a couple hours travel, and it's a place where a lot of our folks uh, go for fishing and such. Uh, not as so much as to sell, although some people do. It's more just families feeding each, feeding themselves, taking care of themselves, um, and it's been that way for years. Well, unfortunately, over the last few weeks, there have been some attacks. Now here, let's perk up a little bit. Like, oh, we heard that the drow weren't really. Uh, bothering folks down this lake. Oh no, not drow. No, nothing nothing quite so devilish, thankfully, but still quite an quite an issue. Um, it turns out there are some creatures, a couple large creatures that have been uh, attacked people in that area. Uh, let me grab the specifics here. Uh, let's see here. Says that um, attacked, uh, there's some attacks in the area and ran people off. Uh, but then actually someone went out there fishing about five days ago and never came back. And they're afraid that they may have fall prey to the beasts in that area that are not normally found there. And they're like, oh, okay, well, animals or people-like things? And they're like, animals, I think. I mean, they're like, it's, you know, owlbears aren't very common in this area. And that's all I had to say. Darcy's was like, hmm? Did you say owlbears? And the rest of the party like, oh, no. Because it is well known across the many worlds that owlbear meat is disgusting to everyone except minotaurs who consider it a very big delicacy. Some damn fine eating, if you will. And there have been several situations in the past where their group has been uh, un fallen off the rails, if you will. Because an owl bear was in the area. In fact, one of their very first adventures, one of the little side fights, was they came across some owl bears, and because Darsh wanted that meat, they all got embroiled in it. Mayor's like, yes. Uh, supposedly, there's a there's a set of caves on the one side, and yeah, just never really been. There's been bears and such that have lived in there in the past. Most of the time, not causing a lot of trouble as far as stay uh, stay away from it. But sure enough. I guess there's two owl bears that have moved into the area. I don't know if they killed the bears or what there, but there's two owl bears hanging out in that cave. Now our characters, are, our heroes are like, well, it's not normal to find two together. They're very solitary creatures. Normally only come together for mating, uh, and then as soon as the child is old enough to be on its own, it's usually abandoned by the mother. The fathers are usually gone long by then. So maybe that, maybe a mother and child that just isn't big enough. And he's like, from one, I haven't seen them, but from the descriptions I have seen, there look like two really big, same-sized owlbears. Well, it is a little unusual. Um, but I guess we'd have to ask, what exactly are you offering? There's a few moments of going back and forth, talking about pricing. Uh, the heroes, you know, haggle a bit to make it look like, you know, they're looking for what you know, getting paid well, but at the same time, not trying to, they're not really, really need the money, but they are trying to play their parts as mercenaries. Uh, and when it's all said and done, just like with Willem, the mayor feels like uh, 
He's paid more than he wanted, but he's actually getting it at a steal if this is successful. And it is contingent upon successful. They have to return with proof of two dead owlbears in order to get paid. It's like, all right, well, after today, we got two more days before the thing shows up. It's a couple hours away. Should we should be able to get there and back tomorrow. Still have a day to rest before we go. Not a problem at all. So that's what they do. They go ahead and they prep themselves up. You know, get some rest. Go to bed a little early. Decide to get up early just in case they do run into some trouble. Want to make sure they get back well, well in time to get part of that caravan. They sleep that night. Darsh sadly doesn't get to stay up drinking like he prefers to do in an inn. Always trying to outdrink Mercy and rarely succeeding. <laughs> they crash out and get up the next morning and begin their travel west. They're up really before any of the patrons of the inn are up. And the the, 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 the guy running the inn, he's like, oh, I'm sorry, you guys need breakfast? They're like, nah, we're, we're good. We, we got some travel food. We'll get it. We want to get an early start. They did purchase a fifth horse for Fia. Remember, Fia was riding double with Dandy at this point. So what, the day before when they were going around traveling, they did pick up a new horse for her. So there are, they all have horses at this point. So there's no more doubling up on a mount. They start making their way in the direction that the mayor and the people of the... Cause they talk to the inn folk afterwards. Like, oh yeah, we've heard about the owlbear problems, man. And it sucks too, because I used to buy fish from this one fisherman. And it's, I cooked him up and sold him here at the inn, but unfortunately he hasn't been able to get out there because of the dangers. And We heard that, uh, you know, farmer from over there, one of his elder sons was out there, and he's the one that hasn't returned in days, so uh, hopefully, you know, maybe he's just gone drinking or something. Maybe we can, maybe hopefully you can find him alive. Our heroes like to help people out, and Darsh loves owlbear meat, so they get an early start. Traveling there is pretty easy. Uh, there's not really a road, but there's a very well-worn path. Um, so people for years have been traveling from this area over there. There are different branches occasionally get, they get on the path that probably lead to other farmsteads and things. It's probably an old animal trail, but just been over 10, 20 years of traveling through here. People have sometimes taken small wagons and things to bring their fish back. So it's not easy to carry a whole bunch of fish home sometimes. Uh, so there's enough of a path that they can follow it. Pretty easy, and there's not a lot of threat of the horses tripping or falling on anything. Sure enough, they reach the lake just a few hours later, and it's exactly as described. On the far side of the lake, they can see a bit of like a rocky crag that's kind of just like a hill that's been, part of it's been broken off kind of thing on the side. And that's supposedly where the owlbear is. They take a little bit of time, they can't see anything from here. They start looking around this side of the lake where people are more commonly fished from what they're told to see if they can find any signs of the missing man. And they don't find anything. Um... Nothing specific, anyways. And there'd probably be a, an old something, old shoe here or something. It's the kind of thing that looks like it's been here a very long time. You know, any watering hole. If you've ever gone to a watering hole in your area where people, kids and people go to swim in the summer, there's always going to be some kind of trash that's been there 20 years. But not a whole lot. So they decide, okay, um, it's kind of warm out today. There's nothing particularly going on out here. It's likely that maybe the owlbears are in their cave. So we're going to have to run a recon. And for that, we're, they decide to send in Dandy. They might think that's a little harsh. Two owlbears, one owlbear could tear apart a kender, but this is what Dandy does, and she works better alone in these situations. It's rare when she's going on a recon she takes anybody with her, with the exception of Quan, who she honestly feels is the closest to a kender a human can get in skills and abilities. 
Still got a long way to go, though. She's always offering to help train him. He just won't take it. He doesn't understand why. She's so helpful. He does such a good job. Just a few things, though, could really help him out. So they make their way around the lake a good distance before Dandy you know, kind of leaves them to move on ahead. And it doesn't take her long to find the signs of Owlbear. I mean, you know, things that have been broken, branches and stuff, where something large has come through there. Big old piles of owlbear poop. Owlbears are large. In case you're wondering what an owlbear looks like, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a big bear, bigger than a normal bear, bigger than a grizzly bear. It's a huge bear. But its claws are a bit more bird-like in talons, especially on the front. And its head is very much shaped like an owl with a big beak. And that beak bite a man's arm off. It is very, very strong and sharp. Because he knows she'll take half his... <laughs> very possible. That's very possible, Ashley. Quan would love the training, but doesn't want to lose all of his personal effects. So she definitely sees signs. You know, they've, they've fought owlbear before. She's had to do this, hunt them before, so... Owlbears aren't really, you know, they're they're not intelligent creatures, per se. They're animalistic in nature, so they're not trying to hide their path. She starts making her way towards the cavern. Now, she's pretty close to it when she can start to smell what's going on in that cave. There's just the smell of decom decomposition. Um, it is common for owlbear to take prey back to their place of food or place of living and, and, and eat on it for a while, whatever they don't eat in their first sitting. So finding a half a deer, half a regular bear, you know what I mean? Even a cow or regular animals that might be in the area. It's not rare to find those in there. And the smell is atrocious because owlbears are just stinky in general. Cooking owlbear meat is just this horrific smell. Even minotaurs think it stinks, but it stinks in a kind of delicious way. Minotaurs are rude. She rolls all of her successful checks and manages to make it up to the cave. She decides to climb up over it and try to look in from above. So that way if something does move or she happens to give away, give notice that she's there, she's, you know, they have to come out and come around to get to her. So she very easily climbs up the hill, um, which is good and bad because she can climb that easily, soaking other things. Owlbear is surprisingly good at climbing. The entrance to the cave is very, very large. Darsh could walk through it easily without his horns hitting the, the top of the doorway at all. So it's a very big cave. And it definitely looks like it's been there a long time from her, from her looking. She can hear sounds inside, the occasional movement and like a crunching noise. So uh, she definitely can know there's something inside. She decides to start, you know, kind of head first. She's able to kind of lower herself off. She finds a small tree. She puts a little bit of her very thin thief's rope. It's a very thin sils, sil, ugh, silk rope that thieves commonly use. Um, it's very lightweight. It's dark. It ties easily. It's hard to cut. Um, because it's dark, it's less likely to be noticed. But it's very expensive. It's not cheap rope. Um, she kind of lowers herself down a little bit so she can kind of see what's going on. Now, luckily, she, the, the, the two owl bears that she sees are far enough into the cave that they're not paying attention to her. At least not yet. Being up high like she is, also a little bit less likely that her scent will wave in there, though she knows she can't stay long because that will happen eventually. And sure enough, there's two full-sized owl bears in there. 
you can't just tell if they're male or female from just standing there. Uh, male and female owlbears are about the same in size, uh, other than the obvious bits. There's not much difference between them, uh, and those aren't things you can really notice from hanging upside down in a cave. But there's two full-size owlbears, and she's like, if one, one of those is definitely not a child. These are full adults, 100%. And unfortunately, she can see in the shadows what they're crunching on appears to be the remains of a person. She can't make out much of it, but from the bones and such she can see in the area, there's probably been more than one. She uses, takes this information and quickly returns back, A, to not give away that she's there, and B, because they may decide to leave, and with them in the cave, that gives them some additional options. She gets back, explains it. Of course, everyone's not happy to hear that there's bodies in there, but at this, you know, humans and such but not completely shocked with a guy gone as missing as long as that guy has. So they decide to set themselves up a little bit of a plan. They're, if they're in the cave, that's good. Because they have the option to kind of keep them ahead if they can kind of block out that doorway, even though it's a large doorway. If Darsh and Mercy can hold that doorway, it may the owlbears themselves would have to come out one at a time because they're huge. So it might help keep them from both attacking at the same time. They also have the option of potentially putting fire in there. And speaking with Fia, um, again, she's a mage of, of, of some ability, and she does have the ability to cast a fireball spell. Conveniently, um, because of her level's not that high, she can cast one a day, but she does have the ability to whip out a fireball spell. And she's like, outside of that, I got some magic missiles I can pop off like any other mage, you know. I don't have a, a whole lot of offensive spells in that regard. Um, but, I, I mean, you get me close enough, I can fire one in there, and it contains space. That one fireball could do a lot of damage, and then I just got to kind of get back out of the way and let you guys do your thing. They're not really excited about having to bring Fia up to that close to the cave, but at the same time, she did really well with them against the giant automatron, the farming thing. And this might be another good chance to see if she would fit in with them on the rest of this adventure. Because they hadn't, you no, know, they'd spoken in private, hadn't decided if once they got the Star's Rest, they'd be kind of like, well, you know, here's some money. Best of luck to you, you know, get your life started. Give her a good chunk of cash. There's 5,000 gold. Go buy a small house or business or find a maid school, whatever you want. Um, or they're like, okay, we'll take you back to our maid school, but... You're going to get squished if you come with us. So you stay here while we go adventure, and we'll pick you up on the way back kind of thing. So they're kind of testing out to see how, how capable she is, because having a mage is very handy. Uh, drow are historically a very magical-based race um, in both their attack. Although it's mostly clerical magic, they do have mages as well. So having their own mage to maybe even slightly counteract that would be very useful. So there's a good test of her abilities. So they determine that Darsh and Fia are going to go up first with Mercy coming up a little bit behind. So that way if she has to, she can kind of pull Fia up. But at the same time, they don't want to leave Artemis in the back all by herself. Which she isn't because she's got Percy. Dandy is positioning herself above the cliff again to have hopefully the opportunity to throw daggers down onto the things, aiming for necks, heads, backs, areas that might be a little easier for her to hit from above, while the regular creatures or a regular team is attacking from the front. The goal is, is for Fia to cast her spell directly into the cave, 
and everybody else kind of jump out of the way before the fire comes blasting out. The only concern is, will the owlbears know they're there before they get a chance to cast a spell? Through scent, or the fact that Fia has to actually cast the spell verbally, it's possible they may make it out. If someone has to block the cave entrance and hold it off for a round or two, Darsh is in the best situation to do that. So they prepare for their imminent attack. And they're able to make it up to the front of the cave without many problems. You know, Fia trips once. And they're careful. Immediately, Danny's watching this like, okay, gonna have to teach her to walk better. I mean, she's definitely someone who's lived her whole life in a house where she hasn't spent a lot of time in the woods. And, you know, she's, she's watching for the, not from a judgy, but a, hey, if you are going to stay with us, this is something we're going to need to do to help you survive a bit better. If we're chasing drow, you cannot be making a bunch of noises. Can you divine verbally? Like, can she whisper? Not normally, no. So most spells, historically, have to be cast at regular volume. So just regular speaking volume. Um, the sounds have to be, because it's not, the thing with a, with, a, with a magic spell, it's a good question, a good way I can touch on this. The thing with a magical spell is you have to perfectly enunciate the syllables. That's very important. So imagine if I'm just having this conversation. I must properly say every vowel and every sound of each word. If I'm whispering it, those sounds aren't able to be made. I'm not forming those actual specific sounds that I get the message across, you'll understand what I'm saying, but I'm not enunciating those perfect syllables. Because, of course, language of magic is the language of gobbledygook, right? Allah, filamamam, but you, it still have to be very well enunciated. And even the, the smallest mistake, the spell will not cast correctly. That's why they have to study them every night before they go to sleep. That's the concept of it, anyways. They have to study them very, very much to refamiliarize themselves, because once they cast it, in theory, the knowledge of it goes with the spell and you forget about it. Original Dungeons & Dragons, you cast a spell, you can't cast it again. Most modern versions have changed that some. But you still have to speak it at a normal tone. There are special spells that may require music. You may have to be chanting louder and louder and louder. You're going to find a lot more of those in cleric spells than mage spells. Um, but there will be chants and things of that nature that you may have to have multiple people all speaking at the same volume. Um, and, and a lot of the group spells require that. So whispering, normally not going to work. Makes sense? Improper enunciation could be... Very much so. Very much so. Especially if we were to take that, that question about properly enunciating. You see the spell wrong, nothing might happen. Or it could backfire, you could make something funky happen. Right? Even more so for people like Deacon and Petal, who are already dealing with wild magic. If they make a mistake, there's a much higher chance that a negative or alternate effect will happen. Regular spell, 75% chance probably the spell just didn't work. For them, 80% chance that the spell now does something different. It'll cause a wild surge, and whether it's good, bad, or nothing, they're not going to know. Um, at the same time, yelling a spell is the exact same problem. It's not easy to properly enunciate when you're screaming at the top of your lungs. 
anybody who's being yelled at by a customer when you're like, I can't understand a thing you're saying, man. You're going to have to calm down. Or you've been yelled at by a family member or something. Someone's screaming at you. You're like, I, I only got half of that. I don't know what you're trying to say. So again, you have to, you have to perfectly enunciate them. So an average tone of voice, maybe slightly louder or slightly quieter, but to the point that you can still make each sound perfectly is required. Uh, for the verbal component, the VSM are the three components of a magic spell. V is verbal, S is somatic, M is material. Somatic means fingers. So you can wiggle your fingers. Blah, 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 blah. Or I got V and S backwards. No, I think that's right. So anyway, there's uh, one of them is you have to have hand gestures. Material means you have to have a bat wing or you know a feather of a goat or whatever the case may be. Do goats have feathers? It's Merge Worlds. If they want to have feathers, I said so. Getting about the goat feathers. But you know, something of that nature. Some spells require all three. Almost every spell is going to require some form of hand movement. Rarely are you going to find a spell that doesn't require that. Although not always are you going to need a material component. Uh, and sometimes you don't even need the, the, the words. Sometimes just hand gestures works. That's why when you catch a mage, you tie up their hands or break their fingers. That knocks them out of 99% of their spells. Just a hint there, in case anybody... Has to fight a wizard. Not in D&D. I just mean in your regular life. You go to the store tomorrow, somebody tries casting a spell on you. You're in the grocery store. Man, grab a pumpkin. Smash that hand. You'll be fine. All right. <laughs> we'll continue. So they get up there and... <laughs> Brutal? Ah, you know? I don't know, man. It's like uh, Dark Wolf 1382 just rep- responded brutal to the statements that I made. Uh, about the breaking the fingers, which is true. It really, really is. And most good people are just going to tie the mage up. Because it's not just... I mean, your hand's tied, you still can't do what you need to do. Especially if you tie their hands behind their back. They're not going to be able to make a whole bunch of hand gestures. Um, But an evil group catches someone. I mean, if you'll remember, when they found... When they rescued um, Tobias from the Kingdom of Ormond, his hands were just all busted up. And it's quite common. You'll find that a lot in fantasy stories and such. In the uh, Dragonlance Chronicles, there was a Palin Majir, who was the nephew of Raceland Majir, big wizard. And they got to the later years, there's one point where he was captured in the same thing. He couldn't cast magic the same way because his fingers and hands had been so damaged, he couldn't make the movements anymore. Uh, he'd been tortured and such for information. Hello, Electric Blaze. Good day. You know, you gotta do what you gotta do sometimes. At the same time, you think about it, right? If you are going to release someone out, you're not going to keep them prisoner forever. It's like it's like either kill you or I can bust your hands so you can't do bad stuff again. Which one you want to take? It's up to you. Cut your hand off or, you know, I can just kill you. Sometimes you're destroying their hand is uh, potentially actually the uh, nicer of the options. Doing well, thank you, Electric. Appreciate it. Just tell them a tale. So they get up there, and Fia is a, is a little bit nervous. Darsh sees that, but he tries to be very calming without speaking. He's like, you know, you got this, taps your shoulder. Because she's never really been in this situation. She's never been in battle before they fought that robo thing a while back. Right? Uh, mage movements. Very much like that, Ashley. Very much. Good call. Very much. All based on the same kind of concept. Um... But, you know, she's a little nervous. She's never really, except that last one, for the first half, she was technically standing behind the shield, right? Um, so, now she's having to be sneaky. She knows what an owlbear is. Most mages would be familiar with them. Uh, they also have multiple components 
that are highly sought after by mages. Another reason why the Darshan heroes have uh, gone out of their way to take out owlbear th threats in the past. Uh, monetary value and Darsh's food. So she gets up there and she prepares a spell. She practiced. She knew she was going to do this today. because She thought she was going to do this. She studied the night before and she's ready to go. Darsh gives her the thumbs up and she begins casting her spell. She's only a couple seconds into it when Darsh hears movement from the inside. The owlbears know that they're there. Very good hearing. This was something they expected. And he very slowly and casually walks partially in front of Fia. He told Fia he's going to do this. If you see me step in front of you, it's potential that they're coming. You keep casting that spell. Okay? You keep casting it and you shoot it right past me. I'm not going to try to block you completely, but on the chance something does come out, I'm going to keep it from getting to you. You just keep concentrating on your spell. And that's kind of exactly what happens. The first owlbear makes it to the edge of the cave just a few moments before she finishes her spell. Darsh is there, already got his shield and sword out, he's ready to go, and the owlbear is forced to stop as the blade comes swinging at its face. The thing roars very loud, and luckily, Fia continues her spell, because again, low-level mage, it's possible that her spell could be interrupted. Things can stop you from casting your spell if you're interrupted. Um, taking damage during a spell very often will interrupt it because it's hard to keep saying the words when someone punches you in the mouth. Example. So, she manages to get off her spell and Darsh has already been in the first round of combat with the owlbear there. The owlbear's large. It doesn't completely fill the hole, but there's no way the second owlbear is going to be able to get out of there with the first one in the way. They can't see the second one. And she aims her fireball as much as she can past her, because a fireball's not really that large. Fireball may be a bowling ball in size. It's not a huge fireball. It's a bowling ball that explodes for, for intents and, all intents and purposes. There. Fires that fireball. As it goes by, Darsh takes a little bit of burn damage. More from the heat than anything else. Singes a couple of little hairs on his arm, whatever the case may be. As it goes by him, he's been hit with fireballs before. This is not unknown to Darsh. But it does go past both him and the owlbear into the cave, and a moment, just a very short moment later, explodes. When it does, just a wave of heat and flame come out from behind the owlbear. There's a loud scream from inside, and the owlbear Darsh is fighting, who just got its biscuits burned, also not happy and screams. Uh, this is very entertaining, even though I don't play D&D. Oh, thank you, Electric. I appreciate that. I try to make the, the story, so even if you don't play, you know what's going on. <laughs> a bowling ball that explodes. Yes, that's a good size analysis. And again, DMs can change that. Some Dungeon Masters would like the size of a baseball. Usually, in most groups I've been in, this is normally about the size of a bowling ball. In the air. You know, There's a spell called Flaming Sphere, which is more the size of a baseball. It doesn't really burst, but it's a little fireball you can control and make it go around and go past things. And you know, As long as you're concentrating, you have to go all over the place. And it can catch things on fire, but it doesn't do the damage a fireball does. It's a much lower level spell. And Artificer, that could be arranged. That's very true. That's very funny. So, <laughs> the heat and stuff is enough to also knock Darsh and Fia back. 
Um, Mercy is able to kind of catch Fia. She doesn't go flying through the air, but she does come falling back from the heat trying to block herself, and Mercy's there to kind of snatch her up. Uh, Darsh is even knocked backwards because when that owlbear gets hit with flames on its ass, it does not stay in that cave. It doesn't care if Darsh is swinging a giant guillotine or a chainsaw. This owlbear is coming out of that cave as flames erupting on its ass. So it just barrels through Darsh, and Darsh, Darsh probably gets a hit in, but he goes knocked backwards way more than Fia does. Fia was already a little bit back. And so, wham, he's, he's kind of falling backwards. The owlbear at this point, wasn't specifically trying to get him. It was just trying to get out. And so it barrels him over and kind of passes him a bit, which means it rushes right up on Artemis and Percy. Dandy, of course, was waiting for the signal. And as soon as that boom goes off and that owlbear comes through, she starts whipping daggers down at that owlbear, which is a dangerous situation. When I'm standing looking down at an owlbear and my friend is technically under it and I'm whipping those daggers, if that owlbear is a little quicker than I thought, he's gone. That's just my friend there now. He's about to get poked. Or I could just miss and stab a Darsh. Um, but, you know, Dandy's like, ah, Darsh could be okay. And she starts whipping him anyways. It's not like it's a butter dish. <laughs> so he's flipping that stuff out there. And, of course, she's deadly with her daggers. So she's poking it in the back as it barrels through. Darsh... Takes a bit of a hit from that, but manages to get back up, right? Taking a quick look around, he has to assess the situation. Mercy has pulled Fia behind her, and is at this point trying to attack the owlbear that is now right on Percy. Artemis is behind him. Uh, of course, Artemis using what few spells she has that are offensive, which are not a lot. She does really have her little wand of magic missiles. She's popping off a few of those, though that one getting a little weak. They do have a certain, excuse me, certain amount of charges, and they can be recharged. But it requires a relatively high-level mage to do that. Fia would not have that capability. So having the mage tower, a lot of times, she will have one recharged for her. Uh, but she used a lot of them against that giant robot harvester earlier. So she's already burned through a lot of these, which is not good because she's only got the one. So Mercy's attacking kind of the side slash front of this owlbear. And Percy's right in front of it. Darsh immediately would jump in to help. But the second owlbear comes running out of the cave. This owlbear is just straight up on fire. Uh, they are very shaggy, like a grizzly bear. And the amount of flint... You can tell the thing, part of its face is melted a little bit. It's like it's... It's, you know... It's definitely in some pain and anger, and scary, evil owlbear animals are scary and dangerous. But one of them hurt that bad makes it even more so. And Darsh realizes he's going to have to take that one himself, probably, to keep everybody else safe. Hoping that maybe Dandy can help a little bit from above. Uh, so Darsh takes on Bear Von Crispy all by himself. And comes in sort of blaring with that. Got his Shield, and he's got a sword. He's, he's, he is using a shield in this combat. I mention that because sometimes he dual wields weapons. Depends on the situation. Dandy sees these same things. And from where she is, it is nothing for her to switch targets as needed. If one bear ends up being a problem more than the other, she can start targeting at that one. She carries no less than 20 daggers on her at all times. Granted, many of them are in a backpack. 
doesn't have all easily grabbable. But she would have, before this fight started, taken a bunch of them out and kind of stuck them in the ground in front of her. So she can just grab one up, pull it and throw it, grab it, pull it and throw it. So she had a ring of daggers around her and her very special magical dagger she keeps and a, uh, a bandolier across her chest, tucked into the sides. She's got a flame dagger. She's got a very strong silver dagger. A couple different daggers of that nature. So, Darsh is taking on Bear Von Crispy. Percy and Mercy are fighting the other one. Keeps kicking me in the face that those guys' names are Percy and Mercy. It's just funny to me. Thea, caught off guard, doesn't quite know what to do. So, for the first couple rounds of combat, she's just like, oh, God. What do, what do I do? There's a bear there, there's a bear there, you know, so on and so forth. But after the combat gets going and she sees her friends in trouble, she immediately then begins casting what spells she has. Magic missile spells specifically. And she ends up shooting him at the one that's fighting Darsh. Even though she's closer to the other one, in her mind, she's like, well, Dandy's really helping the Percy Mercy combo a little bit more because they just don't have Darsh's strength and that owlbear is angry. But Darsh is dealing with a furious almost to the point of insanity bear from the pain. And that bear is not going to care how much Darsh hurts it. It's almost in a berserk at this point. Um, makes it twice as dangerous because A, it's going to ignore the pain of hits just to hit him back, making it harder to hit the thing. Second of all, it is very common in Dungeons & Dragons if something's in a full-blown berserker attack, even if you take all of its life points, sometimes it still keeps fighting. It's dead, but it doesn't stop. And then when things calm down, it just falls over dead. The adrenaline lets it go a little bit further than it should. Common barbarian issue. Darsh, very lucky. He's fought owlbears a lot. Not only because of his time with his friends, but being a minotaur, even as a young minotaur, hunting owlbears is something that is quite commonly done uh, by minotaurs when the opportunity arises. Owlbears are rare. They're magical creatures. They were originally created by a mage. They're not a natural born animal, but they do breed and slowly. That's why you rarely find them together. But he's doing a lot of damage. He knows how to fight the thing. He's staying very nimble. Percy and Mercy, a little bit harder. You know what I mean? When they're... Percy and Mercy are doing their best, but the owlbear is just huge compared to them. Percy's a regular dude. 5'11", 6 feet tall. Average size. But remember, Mercy's like 5'4". She's a badass word, but she's little. Right? So she's little. Artemis is little. Dandy's the littlest. Thea is taller than all of them, except for Percy. He's, she's, she's almost Percy's size. I think she was like 5'9", five, 5'10". Five, that means she's basically towering over Artemis, Dandy, and Mercy. So, but Mercy, of course, is a badass. And it doesn't take long for her to draw the full attention of that owlbear. Because a few good hits of her morning star lets you know she's there. Now, against this type of a creature, the morning star does damage, but not as much as a sword was. And she does have a magical sword. And on occasion, she does switch to it. This is one of those situations. Using a morning star is great against brittle stuff, even regular humans. You know, I swing it, I can crack your skull, break your arm. But against a giant bear flank, little spikes is doing some damage, but the, with all my strength, it's still just hitting a tree with a stick. You know what I mean? I'm not breaking any bones on the inside of that thing. They're just too big and too powerful. So the little spikes may be irritating. Helps that it's magical. But it's not going to do the damage a blade would. So she basically tosses her morning star to the side and draws her sword. 
You'll remember she has a magical ring that can teleport her Morningstar to her hand anytime she needs. So it's nothing for her to just throw it on the ground and pull out another weapon. I'll get that later. So she switched to Sword and Shield herself. And she has, I think it's, uh, if I remember correctly, she's using a long sword plus four? Plus three, plus, plus four. Plus four. She gave the plus three to Ulrich. She has a long sword plus four. So that in itself is a very good long sword. Um, and so she starts slashing with that thing. The fight is relatively going their way. Even with the with the size of these things and the berserker of Darshis, uh, it's the berserk things hurting him and helping him. He's taking more damage than he normally would in these fights uh, because the owlbear is just ignoring his attacks. At the same time, because it's ignoring his attacks, he's able to do a lot more damage to it than he normally could as well. Because it's not trying to protect itself in any way whatsoever. It's still burning, although the flames are starting to go out. And it's just big patches of skin, bubbled and stuff, blistered, because fireballs are not little tiny things. It's a bowling ball that explodes, remember. So, about that time. Now, if you're new here, You'll know that anybody, or you, know, you won't know this, but if you've been here for a while, you'll know that there's nothing more frightening than when the dungeon master says about that time. Because about that time, Darsh sees the third owlbear. The noise of everything going on is loud, and he, no one else is noticing it. Well, the owlbear is coming up the riverbank from the opposite direction. The sounds of the bear's screams have attracted another third adult bear. Very strange that there'd be three of them. Two was strange already. Three, not so much. Well, that third one is running up the bank. And with the positioning of every way everyone is, the closest person to it is Fia. She's casting her spells. She's hearing bears yelling and stuff, as well as her friends yelling out help. Uh, get him in the back, or whatever the case may be. No one sees this third owl bear, but Darsh. So Darsh is in a spot. He has to stop that other owl bear. But if he abandons this owl bear, which he can do if he uses his boots of charging, remember they will shoot him forward really fast. But that's leaving this owlbear to do whatever it needs to do. Okay. Um, what's, oh, what's that there? Glitch Vision says, uh, I'm a moment behind thanks to video lag and buffering. I want to say Darsh is probably a bit sad that she stopped tenderizing his steaks. <laughs> it's very true. Plus, Fia technically may have burned some of the meat. How horrible is that? Flank meat could be delicious. I don't necessarily remember exactly what parts of them they eat, but they eat most of it. And that's gross. No worry about the caps. I do that all the time. <laughs> yeah, tenderize that meat a little bit more. Can I borrow your morning star when the fight's over? Smack, 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 smack. <laughs> that's funny. So he's in a pinch. I can charge over and get that bear and stop it from getting to Fia. But that means the second bear could turn on Percy and Mercy and even Artemis. And then they're taking on two bears. That's also a problem. Darsh estimates he's got the equivalent of two rounds of combat. He doesn't think that way. He's probably like, I've got 30 seconds before that bear's here. He has to do something with this bear. And so, 
He's using his best sword. He has a very good sword. He has a couple very good swords. Remember, he has a bracelet that has like charm bracelets on it. Each one holds a different weapon. He could pop a weapon out of that charm bracelet into his hand or pop it back in. But it takes a moment to do each one. So normally, he just throws his other sword. He just lets go of one sword and pops the better weapon out if he needs one. Goes back and gets that other sword later. Whereas Mercy's only works with one weapon, but it'll teleport to her anywhere she is as long as she's on the same plane of existence. She was to travel to a different plane, it would not work. I don't think I ever mentioned that before, but somebody did ask in a question earlier, uh, in, a, in a direct message, could they do it across planes? They could not. The ring does have to be on the same plane of existence in order to be teleported to it. It's a very good question. I forget who asked that. I'll have to look that up and give them credit. Um, so Darsh decides to be silly. Darsh is going to do something that may cause him trouble, but it's the only thing he can think of. He lets the owlbear make attack against him. He basically lets him attack without trying to defend. And the owlbear bites. Claw, claw, bite. Three attacks per round. Claw, claw, bite. So he does the claws. He kind of blocks one of those with a shield, but when the bite comes in, he lets it bite him. Now, he's wearing some pretty decent armor. It's going to ward off a big chunk of that, but he's still going to get hurt. And it does. He basically it reaches in and it bites him on the, the upper arm, above where the shield is. Because he's trying to block the claw, and then it comes in and it bites him just above the arm, right above where the shield was blocking, and into the shoulder. And it gets a good chunk of meat in there, and it hurts. But Darsh did that because, well, the thing is bit, its mouth is open. And he takes his sword and basically right into the side of the head of that thing. They got strong heads, but Darsh is stronger. And he takes that sword and he just mm, right into the side of the head. Now, it takes a lot of strength to crack through an owl bear's skull. He's coming at it from a weak side. If you know anything about skulls, relatively weak on the sides. Same with them. They don't have horns. Horns are different. But if you don't have horns, temples... Eye sockets, these are easy access here. Ears, this is how you get into a skull. So from the side of the head, up close, easiest way to do that. And he takes that sword and he just shoves it through as hard as he can. And the owlbear screams and twitches and such, but it lets go of him and it kind of falls over. The downside is, is he shoved it in so hard that sword goes away with it. When it falls over, it just wrenches the sword out of his hand. And it's thrashing. Still doesn't look like it's dead, but it's struggling. Darsh has to go at the other bear. Now, Fia sees this. Remember I said she's shooting magic missiles at that bear trying to help Darsh and sees him get bit real bad. She doesn't know that's planned. She's like, oh my goodness. And so she's starting to whip out her, her, her magic missiles, trying to hit it again, trying to help him even more, focused on what's in front of her, because you have to focus on your spellcasting, does not know there's an owl bear 15 feet behind her. 15 feet is not a lot when you're wearing boots of charging. Darsh goes flying past her. She didn't know he could do that. He hadn't used the boots of charging. Oh, did he? I can't remember if he had. She didn't remember he could do that. I don't think he's done that since they attacked, but it's possible. Since they were with her. But he zooms past her, almost knocking her over. And he's charging in shield first. And popping out another sword into his hand. But he's charging shield first. And he's using both hands to brace it. So he has to, normally in this situation, he'd have to roll a dexterity check to make sure he doesn't trip on anything. Because that's the downside of boots of charging. He does not. 
And so he hits that bear full speed, Albert, which was also charging at them full speed. So it's a loud noise as those two really strong, thick creatures crack right into each other. And he basically shield bashes the owlbear straight in the head. Because, you know, the owlbear wasn't expecting a minotaur way over there to suddenly be right here. Again, animal instincts. Wouldn't have been prepared for that. So Darsh goes flying through, and as he hits that, he can hear it cracking of bone in the owlbear and himself. His arm, just from the strength of it, he can hear, uh, it doesn't hear, but he can feel his arm crack and his whole arm gets yanked out of the socket. Like he can feel his shoulder completely dislocated. He threw everything he had on his left side holding that shield in and the pain is intense. Now, the owlbear, of course, tumbles backwards. Not so much from the force of the blow, but just from the shock of the pain. Darsh is tossed backwards. The owlbear has way more momentum than he does. But the owlbear stumbles back because it did take some serious damage and it's a little woozy. And Darsh falls backwards and his shield falls out of his arm because his arm, that arm's dislocated. He has almost no control over it at this point. And he manages to get up on his knees real quickly as the owlbear is starting to, to gather its wits and starting to come forward. It's moving forward, but it's obviously still stumbling. It's trying to, gather, to get towards the screams of the other owlbear. He doesn't know what's going on behind him. But he stands up as best he can and starts making his way towards the owlbear. Now, he's hurt more than he thought he was. When he stands up, he almost falls over again. The pain in that arm and shoulder just hits him like a wave. But he knows the only, behind him is potentially Fia with no other protection. Luckily, he sees a little magic missile shoot past his head and hit, hit the thing. So he knows she's okay right now, but it just to him presses more on how important it is he has to protect her. It could not be charged. That is correct, Michael. That's a very good question. Could her morning star be stored in the chest of holding? It could be, but she couldn't call it. That's a, that's exactly correct. Yeah. Even a regular bag of holding. Hayward's handy haversack. There's a lot of magical bags of holding. Anything that puts it in its own pro, uh, pocket of the astral plane is technically another plane. It cannot be called from that. Very good. There are only a few magical items that I know will work in that regard. Uh, one of them is the Book of Spells, which is a magical item that has multiple pages in it, and each page has a spell. And you may cast that spell once a day. You don't need to be a fighter, a thief, wizard, doesn't matter. You can cast that spell once a day. But once you flip the page in the book, you can never flip back. And it could be a, it could be a wizard spell, it could be a cleric spell, you don't know the level. You random roll for it every time you flip a page. And you don't have to have that book on you. You can have that book back at your house on the other side of the world. It can be on a different plane of existence or in a bag of holding or a chest of holding. But every time you cast that spell, there is a percentage chance the page will flip itself. And that percentage chance increases every time you cast that spell. Mercy had one of these very early on in the adventure. And she had a very strong healing spell. And she used it, I think, eight or nine times before it flipped to like a magic missile or something that was about useless compared to what she had before. But uh, it, they did have one of those. That's the only thing I can think of that works across planes. I want to call it, see, it's called the Book of Spells. Book of Infinite Spells, even though it's technically not infinite. It's something like that. Second edition. Give me a second, I'll find it. 
I don't mind. I know I'm telling the story here. Hopefully you guys don't mind too much. Give me just a second. I'll tell you. I got my Dungeon Master Guide right here. So, let me see here. Let's see. Bus book, Exalted Deeds. Book of Infinite Spells. Incredibly powerful magic item. Creating one is worth 9,000 experience points in 2nd edition. It's an easy way to tell how strong or powerful a magical item is. Is by how much experience you gain by making one. 2nd edition gives us all that. No, it's not in the tome. It's just a classic one. Book of Infinite Spells. And... Every time the page flips, uh, you roll to see if it's a wizard or a cleric. You roll to see which level it is, and then you roll to see which spell it is. 100% random. And as a DM, it's way more fun for me to always make them roll. I never pick one specifically. Because you can flip it as often as you want. But once you get to the last page and flip it, it's done. That book is empty to you. When you open it, it won't open anymore. It won't open anyone else either. The magic of the book is done. It is a... If you pick up a book and open it up, it'll open to the page that the last open spell was. A foolish man riffles through a book. Could you imagine that? Pick that and riffle through it. Oh, it's gone. You've wasted it. Very funny. I've heard a story. It never happened in my group, but a friend of mine said he had a, had, had a group where a guy riffled through the spells of Barbarian. I'm just going to riffle through it see if there's any pictures. <laughs> Throw that in your 5e game. Oh, yeah. Great, great book. It's a... Book of Infinite Spells, uh, if you can't find any information on it, let me know. I'll screenshot it or photocopy it. Uh, send me a message on the Discord, and I'll send you the specifics I've got on it if you can't find it anywhere online. But it should be there. It's been in the game a very long time. Also, if you're looking for chaotic stuff, Deck of Many Things. That has ended more adventuring parties than any other individual magic item in the game. All right. Darsh is in quite a bit of pain. Now he feels a little bit more like the burned up Von Crispy Bear that was back there, which he doesn't know if it's still alive. He's, he's actually lightheaded. The bear is stumbling towards him, and he's stumbling towards the bear, and the barrel growls out in anger and confusion. Right? Anger and confusion. And Darsh wants to whip out one of his swords. But he can't. Because both the bracelet and Mercy's ring do have a command word. Just wanting it in your hand doesn't work. You have to say the command word. And for him, he has to say the command word to pop out the item. He's in so much pain, he can't focus on it and can't remember the word. So the thing comes up to him and growls really loud. His left arm is hanging limp at his arm. He doesn't know what else to do. So he just hauls off and punches it as hard as he possibly can. Again, he feels the crack of bone, both in his hand and in the jaw that he finishes shattering with that punch. Shield had already done a lot of damage to it. And hits it with his fist, and he can feel his own knuckles cracking with the weight of the strength. He's got some gauntlets on, but it's not, again, full, full punch at this point. It's hurting. Because he didn't hold back at all. He's very strong. This is still not enough to kill an owl bear, but by God, it stunned it even more. And again, by second edition rules, minotaurs have two other types of attacks besides melee combat. They have a bite attack, which is not going to help Darsh in this situation, but if you've ever been bit by a cow, that hurts. Just saying. 
But he uses the only other weapon he can think of left. And so he stabs it right up under into its throat as hard as he possibly could with the one good horn that Darsh has left. You'll remember that Darsh, even though the miniature doesn't show it, one of his horns is broken about this far from the ends. It comes up and then bends, and that top bend is busted off. It's busted off very early. They have melee combat. They have a headbutt attack, which can also count as a gore. Against a man-sized creature, they can actually pick him up with his horn and shake him. This is too big for that. But he does go ahead and shove that horn as hard as he can, and he just feels blood wash down his face as the thing starts shaking, which starts shaking him around. And then he feels himself hit the ground as a large weight lands on him, and his body fills with pain. Thea screams out, seeing this happen. Dandy had already been tossing several different daggers, some of her better ones, at that owlbear. The second she saw Darsh go rushing in, his shield hit the ground. When he stood up and he looked off busy and his arm was basically dead, she knew Darsh was in trouble. So she pulled out some of her best daggers and started tossing those at the bear, which is what was helping. Darsh doesn't see that, but it's taking several very strong attacks from Dandy. And then after she throws those, she goes running down the hill to to the bear. She's going to jump into melee at this point. Her goal is if she can get close enough to try to get on the thing's back. If she can get a stab from behind, she can get it in an eye or somewhere like that. That's what... A backstab is. It's not just, I stab you in the back. You're going for a specific part of the body, and you're doing more damage because of that. It's a thieves skill. I don't know if it's in 5th edition yet, but if it's not, I'm bringing it back, because that's the best thing a thief can do. So she's rushing down to try to help there. So she's rushing down with her best dagger, which is a dagger plus 5. And she's running, she has the flame dagger, she has a silver dagger plus three, and she's got a a dagger plus five. Those are her big three. But she she has a couple plus one and plus two daggers as well. But she's always looking for magical daggers. Artemis collects rings. That's just how they are. Darsh is unconscious. The way hits him and he blacks out. Mercy is doing well against their owlbear. But it's actually Percy that ends up striking the killing blow. Mercy does a good bit of damage, and the bear turns on Mercy and gets a good hit in. But when it does, it raises its arm to hit her. Because remember I said, she's on the side of it. It reaches up to hit her. By doing that, exposes its underside. It's under- and Percy comes in and stabs it straight through and manages to get it clear in the heart. And she, it stabs it, and the bear cries out, and he's being pulled around a little bit, but he manages to pull the sword out and then hack at it again, and Mercy comes at it, and a few hits, and it drops down. The one that Darsh first got is dead on the ground. His sword strike through the head was enough to kill it. It wiggled around a little bit, but it's still over there. Very stinky. Very still crispy. On the outside, possibly still tender in the middle. And Fia quickly yells at the Artemis that Darsh is under that thing. And they're like, what? (gasps) Because, you know, they're all in the middle of a melee. They don't have time to watch what Darsh is doing. So Artemis, they all go running over there real quick. And half of like the bottom half of Darsh is sticking out from under the owlbear, but he's face down. That's a problem. He was in the head and he got pulled down. We don't know if he's dead. Did his head get cracked? What's going on? He's laying on his face. That kind of weight, if his face is being pressed into the wet sand next to this lake, he could be suffocating to death. 
Well, there's not a person in this group who can lift an owlbear, except for the guy unconscious underneath of one. So very quickly, they drop the chest of holding. Mercy jumps down and comes back out with some rope. And they tie it around the thing's head. It's as best as they can, right? And then all of them, like, you know, in a group are standing there pulling on the rope. Percy, Artemis, Mercy, Dandy, even Fia. You know, maybe, maybe one of them's on the other side trying to help push it up. And then the goal is to try to get it up high enough that they can try to drag Darsh out. Which in itself is his own challenge. Even though she's a badass. Technically, Percy's a little bit physically stronger than Mercy. So, if they can get it up, he's the one who's going to try to drag Darsh out. And they pull hard, and they pull up, and they manage to get it lifted up enough where Percy's able to tug and tug and pull him out. It takes a few tries, because he's got a horn stuck in his throat, but he manages to pull Darsh out. And they roll Darsh over as the owlbear thumps back into place. And, you know, Dandy walks up to it and Stabs it a few extra times in the neck, just to make sure. You don't know if an owlbear is going to get back up again. So she, I can just picture her walking up, look, going... Just stabs it a few extra times in the eye and in the neck. and you know, Just making sure. Just making sure. And then she probably walks around to the other ones and does the same thing. You know, better safe than sorry. Well, Artemis immediately gets to work on, on Darsh. Uh, he's in rough shape. He's not dead, thankfully. He's still alive. His horn also did not break, the, the other one. Man, the character, <laughs> young lady who played Darsh would have been pissed if I'd have broke his other horn. <laughs> Did not break his other horn. But they managed to, she starts casting heal spells. Again, she's got to whip out some of her bigger spells to do this. Mercy has to pop that shoulder back in. And they decide to do that before Artemis uses her bigger spell because it's going to be way easier if he's unconscious on him. But it takes a lot, but Mercy's able to pop it back in. And then Artemis begins casting multiple heal spells. Several of the other people are hurt a little bit. Percy and Mercy. Fia didn't take any damage, and Dandy was never in melee. She never reached it to the bear before Darsh had hooked it up. Uh, but Percy and Mercy had taken several injuries themselves, but nothing like... So they're like, no, deal with Darsh. We're fine for now. And yeah, they're able to heal up Darsh pretty well. But even with the spells that she uses, uh, he's still in relatively sore shape. Like, he can get up and walk around. I mean, he's not good yet. He's unconscious for a couple of hours. She lets him rest because a healing sleep is just better that way. Let's him rest there for a bit while they search the rest of the area. Very well armed, gathering up all their weapons because it's already weird that there were three of them together. Who knows if there's a fourth? So Dandy gets back up on that hill as a lookout until they're ready to go. Artemis and Fia stay with uh, uh, Darsh, and Percy kind of just walks around that area looking both ways in case something attacks. Mercy al goes alone into the cave to see if there happens to be any survivors, which, of course, there are not. Um, she finds the bodies of at least two people. At the state they're in, it's hard to tell for sure, because they're not you know, pieces of them. Um, and she is able to find on a hand a small signet ring that she does take off. It's very common in nature, uh, not owned by somebody of value. Hopefully that will help identify the person's family. And to take that's the only thing of real value that they find in there. Sometimes owlbears will have some treasure because of the stuff just on the bodies that they take. But owlbears don't necessarily seek out treasure. If they grab somebody who had a pouch of gold, they may have the pouch of gold. But they don't gather treasure themselves. Great to throw at a party, though. Again, giving you an example. 
an owlbear is a very big challenge for an early level party. This is not an early level party, and two of them were tough. Three did some serious damage. Had I thrown in five or six of them, I probably would have wiped the party. Owlbear are just that strong. That or they would have had to start using their really powerful magic items to, you know, save themselves. Because they all have some really powerful magic items that are limited use that they hang on to for extreme emergencies. So it's several hours before Darsh is finally able to wake up. Um, still very dizzy and there's still quite a bit of pain in his arm. Not only was his shoulder um, dislocated, but there were several fractures in that arm and he had shattered a couple, of, cracked a couple of fingers and a knuckle. Artemis has healed all those things, but even though they're healed, they're still sore and weak spots. If he was to haul off and punch something, a punching bag, he might repop those knuckles again. It takes time for the full, for the full heal to go through. That's how I kind of play D&D. There are spells that'll just bring you right back as if you just woke up fresh and early. Those are harder to cast, and they cost more. So healing spells will heal you. Doesn't necessarily mean they're going to make you feel great. They were able to make their way back to their horses, which they left tied up on the other side of the lake, so they didn't freak out or anything. And they begin making themselves their way back to town. It's late in the afternoon, beginning of evening, when they finally return. Um, with them, hanging from Darsh's horse, because Darsh has a huge horse. You can imagine Darsh isn't just hopping on an everyday horse. He weighs as much as a regular horse. So, Mercy always has one or two real large, like Clydesdale-looking horses in her stable for when Darsh or another Minotaur ally shows up. You know, she's a horse lady. That's her thing. Loves her horses. So she breeds horses. She has several huge ass... If you don't know what Clydesdale is, look them up. They're my favorite horse. Never got to ride on one. That'd be awesome. They're massive freaking horses. Um, so yeah, he, he hops on one of those huge-ass Budweiser pulling Clydesdales and uh, um, makes it forward on that kind of thing. But hanging from the belt are three owlbear heads. Which themselves, heavier than the average head, but his horse can handle it. What? Oh my god, you just said it? Yes. <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> Yeah, he's got the real shaggy feet. I love the shaggy feet horses. So, <laughs> they get back with not two, but three owlbear heads. There's no denying that these people successfully did what needed to be done. The mayor, of course, immediately comes out. The mayor, the guy, what I say his name was Mark, pays them the money promised, shocked that there were three of them, and very dismayed to find that there were several bodies there. In fact, he does know that the signet ring did belong to the man that he had asked about. But... The other two bodies he doesn't know, so he's going to reach out to some of the other farmsteads and such in the area, see if we can find anyone else that's gone missing. He's very sad to hear that happen. Could be there's always there's always some people who live alone. Could have been one of them, and so there's no one to report they're missing, you know. But that being this case, Willem, on the other hand, is like, oh, three owlbears, huh? And Darcy still got some bruises on him, and you know, and he's like, yeah. Three owlbears. And he's like, I think I made the right choice. Well done, well done. He claps Darsh on the shoulder. Darsh's like, ooh, yeah, right choice. Oh, God. He's like, uh, yeah, we, we travel a lot. We're going to go get some rest now, get a bite to eat and sleep. Sure enough, they get feet, and then they go to sleep because the next day, the caravan is going to arrive. And they will be heading north to Star's Reach.
course, what the citizens don't know is wrapped up inside of a what was an empty barrel deep inside of the chest of holding. Prime cut owlbear meat. Mm-hmm. Darsh made sure to cut him off some very quality owlbear meat. Put it down, wrap it up so hopefully it'll contain and the chest of holding. And then uh, they also peeled off a bunch of the things like eyes and nails and beak pieces and such as mage stuff, allowing Fia to take anything she wanted. Uh, she took a few things, which to her, she's like, wow, just getting a hold of an owlbear eyeball is rare as hell. The fact that I've got my choice of five of them, because Darsh did stab through one, that eyeball was ruined. But, you know, that's some high-quality stuff for her, and itself would be a small fortune in spell components. And the rest of it, she ta- they take and bottle it up, bag it up, stick it downstairs in the chest of holding, because, again, a lot of the stuff they bring back home, and Mercy's like, what up, battle mages? Supplies! You know, you can imagine a battle mage going, yeah! Okay, I just learned this really big fireball spell I want to cast at your enemies. And I needed an owlbear finger. Thank you, you know. It, it just helps everybody at that point. So they manage to get back, get some food, and get some sleep and heal up. Because the next day, the caravan will arrive, and they'll be heading north. Big babies, <laughs> you're fine, Dark Wolf. I know what you meant. You're good, bud. Now, about that time, far, far away from there, far to the south and east, there is a small handmade wooden cottage nestled in the deep trees of the forest. Very close by, a small running brook of clear, cool water runs through the woods. The house itself would be considered very modest, not overly large, consisting of only three chambers, two bedrooms and a common living area, cooking area. Outside, you'd see the signs of where someone would be tanning leathers, things of that nature, drying meat, things of that nature. Uh, And the artistry and the carvings on the wood would look very uncommon to the average person. Uh, Some might think them hieroglyphics, although much more animal symbols in style. Well, the home was originally the home of two good friends. Tevin Lightbringer now lives there alone. His best friend Draven, having in the past relocated to come to live into the Temple of Serenity with Artemis' wife. Tevin spends quite a bit of time there in the temple himself, but does enjoy the quiet solitude of the woods, which is very much like the lifestyle he grew up in living with the tribals. Now, if you're new here, I'm going to touch on those. Tribals are the race of humans that Tevin belongs to. They would be very much like what we would consider Native Americans. Um, but of course, it's not America. So, they're, but they're in looks and such. They're tribes. Tribals is in no way meant as a negative thing. It's, it's a point of honor. The tribes of this this group. There were multiple tribes, and they, after years of many years of warring, hundreds of years ago, finally came to peace. Um, because in each generation, to one tribe will be born a prophet. And. Several hundred years ago, the last male prophet 
brought an end to those wars and, and said that, you know, basically cast a spell type kind of thing, that should anyone ever in violence take, uh, you know, one of the tribes try to take the prophet away from another, that that, pro- that that tribe would be cursed. The concept behind them is that in every generation, a prophet is born, you never know which tribe. Whichever tribe has it, that's the head tribe for that lifetime. Um, all tribes, but again, benevolently. If they try to abuse it, there's, there's ways of taking care of that. But that's not the case. They live in peace. There's, they're just, you know, they all live relatively geographically. Merged worlds, um, five of the seven tribes came through. Tevin being one of them. There's a whole story about it early on. Many of you have already had that. If not, highly recommend checking out the last older episodes. It's one of my favorite tales. Tevin's one of the last few survivors of his tribe because many of them were killed by Draven's brother. And he became Draven's best friend, living many years on Draven's planet with him, coming back as a much more powerful cleric than he left. Also a cleric of healing like Artemis. Um, But now... Kind of lives in this little house by himself. He wakes up and rolls over. Sad. As he sees the body next to him climbing out of bed and beginning to dress. He can see the curves of the young woman's skin and the multiple tattoos that she's now covering up with her clothing. He coughs politely to let her know he's awake, though he has no surprise she already knew. The young woman turns. She too, her skin being slightly dark in complexion, though not quite the same as his, has long, dark hair. Turns and gives him a little smile, shakes her head. And he says, really, must you go? She gives him a little knowing look, like you're going to look at your kids, say, now you know you can't have a cookie before dinner. Now you know... We talked about this. I can't stay much longer. If your friend came by, it just would be best if we didn't meet in these these type of situations. Tevin, again, as always, whenever she left, felt himself get a little bummed out and sad. He'd come to grow very fond of the young woman over the last year that he'd known her. Had met her a year earlier, actually, on the night that the undead had attacked Serenity. As he rushed from the temple to get to where the flame of Serenity was to help Draven and the children, she knew they were there, he'd fought his way through many times. And as he came upon them and rushed in to help Draven, as the undead collapsed all around them at that point, the young woman was there as well, not far away. It was clear that she'd been fighting against the undead as well. Um, as she was you know, sweaty and disheveled and so on and so forth. He'd noticed her. You know, one of those, who's this? I don't know her. She's cute, kind of things. But as he was helping and helping get her way back to the temple, he didn't see her until a week later. He was visiting and he was going out for a walk after the, you know, in the night. And she was there and they began talking. It wasn't long before um, she started coming to the, the, uh, the village out here, or the, the, the house, to spend the evening from time to time. And Tevin knew very little about her, other than her name is Kat. Now, probably short for Catherine or Katrina. Who knows? In fact, he couldn't even be sure that was her real name, as secretive as she was. Now, he knew 
that she was a member of the Thieves Guild. Although, what level or of what rank in the city, he didn't know, nor did he ask. That side of her life, she'd made it quite clear she did not want to discuss with him. But it was also true that she had feelings for him. He knew this by the fact of the time they spent together and as often as she came back. Playfully, she climbs back into bed and gives him a long kiss and says, I have to go. I don't know when I'll be back, but I'll be back when I can. And he nods, smiling, trying not to let on how sad she really is. She, pecks, she grabs her sword and straps it on her belt and pokes the knives back into her, into her vest as well. And with a wink and a smile, opens the door to his room and leaves. She'd made it quite clear that it was important that she not run into Draven whenever Draven was here. So she has nothing against Draven. Draven does not know her, but it would be best in the long run if the two did not have any contact. Especially because of her profession. Being a thief. And being a member of the Thieves Guild, the last thing she wanted was to be interrogated by a member of the family of the Holy Cleric. Though Tevin assured her Draven would never be that type of person. She was still being very cautious. She had many secrets. But she did care for him, and he cared for her, and he hoped that maybe one day he could find a way to convince her to give up that life and settle down kind of thing, although he didn't have a whole lot of hope. He took what he could get. Stands up and walks into the common room and restokes the fire, get the flame back going again, still remembering her being there. Sits down in the chair and starts going back to sewing the leather pouch he was making as a gift for one of the orphans at the temple. His thoughts can only be of the young lady cat and wondering, wondering when he will get to see her again. my chocolate milk. But that's all I have about that for today. So let's swing on back to our main character, shall we? The next morning comes along. And still slightly sore, Darsh rolls himself out of bed. proceeds to gather up all of his stuff and pack up. Even, even as he first woke up, he could look out the window of his room and see that the caravan had arrived. The caravan was considerably larger than they expected. Willem uh, himself said he didn't know exactly how big it would be, only that it would be, you know, at least multiple wagons. There had to be at least 14 wagons up there. Um, so there's quite a bit of materials traveling from a southwestern kingdom or settlement to be traded or sold at Star's Reach. They get themselves a bite to eat, and it's not long before Willem shows up, and begins chatting them up, saying what was going on, they'll be leaving soon. They pack their stuff, get their horses ready, pay their tab, and joining up with the caravan, continue on. The caravan's been running day and night. Uh, mostly stopping to rest only as little as possible, um, as needed, but over the next few days, potentially having to go even harder, because this is where things get dangerous. It's from here on is where the drow make themselves... Uh, a nuisance, if you will. Secretly, our friends actually hoped that the drow would pop up. Getting a sight of them, maybe get an eye for their numbers, make out any of the symbols on their clothing or their clan, any of this stuff 
might be important information into figuring out who these drow were. Were they drow they've known before? And what type of threat they may be bringing with them? At the same time, if the drow don't show up, eh, people might not get hurt. So it's kind of a 50-50 either way. They're given a position relatively mid-caravan. Willem does have at least another 8 to 10 other people working in his group, and the caravan has some of its own personal guard that have been traveling with it up to this point. So for a caravan this size, it's actually quite exceptionally well protected. Darsh and Mercy especially can only nod uh, approvingly at the materials and the weapons that everyone's carrying, the protection of the wagons... Uh, most of the, the wagons, while are carrying goods, several of them um, are both where people could fire arrows or crossbows from inside. They've got bolt holes or arrow slits. If you don't know what that is, it's a slit inside of a wall. You find it in castles and in wagons. That someone can shoot out of, but it's a lot harder to shoot into from a distance. So it's harder for you to hit me, but it's easier for me to hit you. Offers me some protection. You've got to be a pretty good dead eye to shoot right through that slit that's this wide. kind of thing. So... The caravan begins rolling, and they get going. And they travel for days, without any issues. The entire trip is supposed to take... Six days? Six days. Supposed to take six days at the pace that they are going. Now, as they travel... uh, They have a lot of opportunity to speak with Willem. Uh, both individually and together. And Willem is more than happy to chat with him. He's a very friendly person. And one of the first things they learn is that he's lived in this area his entire life. In fact, he's never really traveled outside of this region. Um, He originally was a city guard. uh, Was paid well and he worked in there. And then he found that, you know, one day there was a good amount of money being offered for people to protect a caravan. And kind of left the guard, took that on, he wants some extra cash, and found out it was a much more preferable life. Paid better, he gets to work his own schedule, take on the caravans he wants, ones he doesn't want, he can let go. And he started doing it more and more, and made a good business out of it, until he got other people working for him. Um, It was good money for years, but then the drow showed up. And to be honest, it got even more, more uh, 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 Valuable, money-wise. His services became more in need, although he, he genuinely gives the feeling like, well, I like the extra money. Don't get me wrong. I'm making a lot of money off this. It's not easy work, especially with the drought out there. And a lot of people, even friends and people that have worked for him in the past, have lost their lives to other attacks. Because a lot of the people that he worked under him may have taken a job under another caravan. You know, they, they all work under his specific employees. They're more like contractors, if you would. But because of his name and experience, he, it's easy for him to line up a job and then just find people to help fill it, much like he did with Darshan. Um, in the beginning, when the drow showed up, it was easy money. Just hearing that there were drow in the area, people started offering more money to be protected in the same places in the same way as before. For months, it was not a problem at all. Never saw hide nor hair of a drow. Not a single threat. Heck, he was starting to doubt they were even out there. Might just be rumors, but rumors that were making him a small fortune. But then things began to escalate. It began to escalate quickly. The drow then had moved from just stealing crops and uh, stealing items from homes and things of that nature and animals to starting to actually kill. 
started with a farmstead family being completely wiped out. Then a very small caravan of just two wagons of one actually small merchant group um, was discovered completely burgled. Everyone left for dead. At that point, things got a lot harder. Granted, the money being offered to him sometimes was enough to make him a small lord himself. A lot less people started, you know, wanted to take those jobs. As more and more caravans started losing people, and caravans as a whole started getting lost, it became hard to find people. So he had to pay even more, which made him charge more, which was still fine. But he lost some good friends that way. Now, Warren and, and his miscellaneous crews have successfully defended from three drow attacks. This is the part that catches Darcy's and Mercy's and the, the group's uh, uh, attention. There have been three attacks by Drow that he has managed to drive them off. Luckily, through numbers. Um, as to how many Drow there are, he has no idea. In fact, he's never really seen one. The Drow always start with ranged attacks. Bows and crossbows. Shooting, firing at the group. If they do enough damage, then normally they'll come in on melee. Um... Let me phrase it. He has seen them, I'm sorry. As the drought come in, they usually do range attack. They only come in if they're going to be successful. Um, and his numbers have always kept that from really being an issue. The few times he's seen a drow, of course it's dark, it's in the woods, but he's managed to fight them. He's injured a few, but they've never been able to recover a body. Because the drow always take their dead with them. Which sounds right. That's about normal. But he's successfully defended two of them. He never once came into melee. The third one he did. That was the most recent one. The drow were getting more bold. In each of these situations, there were several common things. First came the crossbow bolts and arrows. Then the hooting of the drow, yelling from the woods around them. Probably to discourage them, hide their numbers. And then at some point, melee. Darcy, Mercy, and Danny start asking questions over this time. How about magic? They cast any magic spells at you? He says, no. At least none, that, none in the ones that I've been involved with. So uh, he's never seen a female with them. And he's never seen any magic being used. So it could just be a group of males. You know, because historically, females are the clerics in that society. Um, although males can very often go into the wizards and so on and so forth. Females can do whatever they want. But males... Becoming a cleric is very rare. From all the different information they get from Willem, they're kind of gathering it. They talk about it at night when they have some resting time or time together while they're riding along. They talk about it. It sounds typical and atypical. Some of the things that they're hearing, yes, that's how, that's how drow work from their own experience. And of all of them, Dandy's the most knowledgeable. She spent quite a bit of time studying and researching and reaching out through contacts to find out as much as she could about drow. But these ones, some of the things they're doing are off-kilter. Drow are normally silent attackers. So the hooting and calling and, and such, they're definitely, they, Willem always says, when they are calling out, it's a language they don't know, probably elvish. So there's not a lot of elves in the area. So a couple half-elves, but none he's ever traveled with. So if it's some type of elvish, he doesn't know it. But they also have to address, it's possible, these drow could be from a completely different world. 
Merged worlds is a combination of a million worlds. These could be atypical drow because on that world, those drow are different. Does that mean it's the drow they're looking for or not? It's too early to tell. Too early to tell. Whatever the case is, they're still hurting innocent people. You're attacking people in this town and the town needs help. Our heroes continue on their way to assist with them. It's on the fourth night of travel, two days out from Star's Reach, when they are attacked. Willem had prepared them, of course, for the signs and things that caravan protectors in this area have come to learn might be an attack. It's a cloudy night, not a lot of starlight, things of that nature. And most of the things they were looking for did not match this night. Because it's drow that they were watching for. But it was two hill giants that found them. Willem is as shocked as everyone else as the two huge creatures come tumbling into the caravan. It wasn't late. The night was still going. They were still traveling along. They hadn't settled for the night. But then all of a sudden they hear the boom in the trees cracking and two large hill giants come out from one side of the road. You can imagine the shock. These people are already on edge, worried about drow, looking for shadows in the trees everywhere they could. Then all of a sudden, two monstrous beasts come tumbling out of the trees. To his credit, Willem and his guards immediately snapped into action, trying to gather people up to defend the caravan and to take on the hill giants. Darsh and friends, which is what I like to call them sometimes, Darsh and friends, they knew their jobs traveling, but in a fight like this, they knew they were a little bit probably better suited than their allies, and immediately Roche rode in to attack. Darsh and Mercy quickly on the ground. Percy making sure that Artemis and Fia were safe, then moved in to help as well. As much as he wants to help protect Artemis, keeping giant man things from getting close is the best thing you can do. While this fight was going on, both Darsh, Mercy, and Dandy, I don't know if that's both, that's technically three people, all had the same thought. Are the drow allied with these? And are the drow going to attack us from behind? This is something they were very concerned about the entire battle. As far as the battle itself, it went rather smoothly. Hill Giant, seeing a large collection of squishy man people, Horses, which are delicious, and whatever goods they could find in the uh, wagons, which could be more food things and such, valuables. Thought it would, you know, there'd be some protectors, but it would be an easy, easy take. Even though it did look like there was a few more people than normal. What they were not expecting was Darsh, Mercy, and their allies. They had fought giants before, many times, and were very experienced in strategically how to deal with that. Once again, Dandy immediately starts going for her ranged attacks, looking for an opportunity to try to get behind. What good is it going to be for Dandy to get behind one of these things? That's always the question I get asked. It is a hill giant. Barely as high as his shin. The bottom of his shin. Can you backstab something on the back of its shin? <laughs> yeah, baby, you can. Hamstring. 
is a muscle and tendon that runs across the back of your leg. And if you've ever heard the term to be hamstrung, it's called that because if you cut that, you lose the ability to stand or control your foot from your knee down there. Knee down, you lose that. Dandy may not be able to cut an entire tendon with her little knives and such, but they're sharp enough to cause some damage in that area. Um, so yes, it is possible for even a small rogue to do some pretty serious damage, right? Uh, yep, Achilles tendon. There you go. There's a lot of there's a lot of surprisingly there's a lot of stuff in your feet and ankles that can affect how you move. Um, your whole body's weighted on those two little legs of yours. So, you know, you cut some serious stuff in there. So Danny looks for those opportunities. Granted, her blades aren't that large. She uses knives. So it would be hard for her to cut through a very deep cut. A warrior definitely could do serious damage should they get back there. But they're watching for that, right? And not seeing little Dandy sneak up in there. Several of the guards, of course, helping them and such. They had the assistance, but Darsh and Mercy do the lion's share of the damage. Darsh, again, specifically. At one point, nearly cutting one of the legs off at the knee himself, just with his sword. Um, early on in the fight, he drops his shield, gets knocked away from him, blocking the huge club of uh, the, the giant as it swung by. Not enough to normally hurt him, but his arm's still a little sore from before because it had so much damage. So his arm just wasn't able to hold onto the shield as well as it normally could. So he starts using his weapon in a two-handed format, which, again, some weapons are available in one-handed and two-handed. And if you use it with two-handed, you can feasibly do more damage because you can put more strength into the cut and cut differently. But it does eliminate the ability to have something in your other hand like a shield. Many of the players' handbooks and the guides, if you pull up a weapon, right? Pull up a weapon, and you find, I think it's broad bastard sword, I believe it is. You'll find one-handed bastard sword, two-handed bastard sword. It's basically the same sword. It's how the style you use to fight it. Darsh can do both. So he switches to two-handed style. And he gets a lot of strength behind that. He just doesn't have the defense because he doesn't have a shield now. But he about cuts a leg completely off himself at the knee on one of them. And when it falls to the ground, many of the other guards, including Percy, rush up and just start pummeling and stabbing it. It doesn't take very long. Mercy and Dandy are attacking the other one, along with several of the other guards. And this one also has Willem with them as well. Uh, and it's, again, as I mentioned, it's Danny that, Dandy that does the surprise attack. She manages to get behind it. They're fighting the thing up front, and all of a sudden, wham, out of the shadows, Dandy comes zipping out behind the thing and just starts slash attacking at the back of its ankles, back of one of its feet. The damage is very, very quick. She's just in there dual-wielding daggers at this point. And boy, does it catch its attention. It loses its balance and also falls. Well, not all the way down. It's enough to let Mercy and the, her other allies to start hitting the squishier bits. You know what I mean? I mean, if I come up to your knee or groin, I got some areas I can swing at. You fall to your knees, now I can hit chest, neck, and maybe even your face. That's a lot more area of important stuff I can do damage to. So getting the legs knocked out of something tall, very important. Darko says the Hoth attack, get the rope and wrap it around it. I've seen it done. It has been done before, trip lines and such. When you have time to set up an uh, ambush on them, all the time. These guys have done stuff like that a lot. Uh, but when they get attacked, it's a little bit harder. But a good idea, though, completely. One second. So, the battle goes relatively seamlessly. Darsh takes a few hits. One of the guards gets squished pretty good, but enough so that Artemis is able to heal him enough that he'll be able to live 
although he's going to be in some pain for a while. But they managed to successfully take out the Hill Giants. When it's done, the caravan is legitimately cheering, like, wow, we just knocked out two Hill Giants. And you can imagine Willem is standing there looking at Hill Giants, and his eyes are just dollar signs. Like, when this caravan gets there, and Willem and crew took out two Hill Giants to protect it, there's not a caravan in the world that's not going to come to him first. So he is overwhelmingly appreciative because he can look at, you know, he's looking at Darsh, Mercy, and friends and be like, these guys did the lion's share of that work. Darsh is just savage. And shockingly, what Dandy was able to do was horrendous. These people work well. Fia got some spells shot in as well, of course, and Percy did some stuff. But our three main heroes do the lion's share, right? And then Artemis saving the life of one of the other guards, one of his other men that's got squished. That's also a huge bonus, because he never really has a healer with him. Most of them don't sign on for this kind of job. So he's just seeing dollar signs. The old giants, of course, don't have anything of value, and they immediately carry on as quickly as they can to get away from the hill giants, of course, in case there's more. But B, they need to get to the city and let them know there's hill giants out there. Were there more? Was it a random attack? Did they have something to do with the drow? There's no way to know. But he needs to let the other caravans and the other city guards know there may be additional threats in the area now. Because everybody's got the same thought. Are they in league with the drow? Not normally the kind of enemies or the kind of people that the drow would deal with. But these may be atypical drow. Could be from a different world. And there's there's... Society might be a little bit different. Teaming up with giants, which again, they're hiding in the hills, in the mountains, hill giants. There's a lot of things that would point how these things could very easily be be tied together. And our heroes are thinking the same thing. They're able to push on the next two days and successfully make it to Star's Reach without any other attacks or problems. Due to uh, Artemis' continuous help, the other guard that was injured is going to make a full recovery. He's very, very thankful for Artemis' help. And, you know, everybody just likes to have Artemis give him a blessing. You'd be surprised people come over with their food and they'd be like, would you mind blessing my stew? There's your stew. Thank you very much. Because, you know, you just got to say bless it. And to them, you know, superstitious folks, right? They make it back to the city. Or make it to the city for the first time. The city of Star's Reach is smaller than Serenity, but much more densely packed. The city streets are definitely thinner. Wagons and stuff, they're still streets, but I mean, the buildings are a lot more clumped together. As Serenity grew, and the land was all Mercy's, and she started, you know, selling or leasing that out, building the roads, it was easier for her to space things out in in, in a city as it grew. This one grew over time, and people just wanting to be close to the center hub just kept building and building and building. So as I mentioned in the last episode, it was originally just a, a small trading camp that grew into the huge city that it is now. So it's very, very congested. Um, as soon as they get into the city, they start looking around, looking for signs or clues or anything that might be an issue. And as always, one of the first things that they notice is that there is some poverty in the city. They can see some homeless or beggars and things like that. You know, look like little orphans running around the street, whatever the case may be. But it's not bad. It's not as bad as many of the other cities they've been into. In fact, most of the buildings and businesses they see are in pretty good repair. Like, they're in good shape. It looks like a relatively wealthy town, which, again, makes sense. 
considering it is a trade town. Now to stress that a little bit more, this city is the central trade hub for multiple other cities. Many of those other cities in the past at different times may have been at war or fought against each other for one reason or competed. competed. But Star's Reach has always been a neutral ground and anyone coming there can trade or sell their goods to anyone. None of that combat, none of that war crosses into their borders. It won't be tolerated. If so, your kingdom will be barred. And that's a problem, you know? If you're two kingdoms out of, let's say, six that surround this place, right? You're fighting, but now your opponent is the only one that can go to this city and trade for weapons and gear and supplies from the other cities, the other big countries, because you're not allowed in, you're going to lose. So it is an overwhelmingly rare situation that there's been any issue inside of Star's Reach itself. Probably centuries at this point. They've been around a long time. The city, of course, has a mayor. All cities do. Well, most cities do. But uh, the mayor is actually chosen by the um, merchant lords. They learned that from Willem. So when they arrive there, they get to see that. The city has several inns. It has a huge market rivaling Paxawals, which is shocking, considering it's half the size of Paxawal. Now, they don't even get a chance to get 10 feet in the city before <laughs> he's already offering them another job. Like, listen, you guys are great. I'll pay you double, because you did most of the work. I'll pay you double. I've, got, I've already got another one lined. They're like, we appreciate it. We've come here for a reason. He's like, okay, I had to at least ask, but you know what? I'm going to be here. Some of the caravans in protection I don't go with. I just prepare it. I, I get guys hired, especially some of the smaller ones. The big jobs like this, he leads himself. He's like, so you can always find me, you know, or find out about me at the Silver Kettle. It's an inn on the end of town. I kind of run my business out of there. I'm partnered with the owner. So if you need a room or anything, you're welcome to come down there. I'll get you a good deal. I'm there if you change your mind want to make some more coin. Or you get this taken care of, you want to head back down south, I'm sure I can get you a job heading that direction. You know, get you some money on the way. Because again, only dollar signs when he looks at these guys at this point. Again, they're very friendly. Thank them very much. But they've decided to, uh, you know, finish their original business. Come here, find out what's going on, and try to help them out. And uh, they also decline offer a room at the Silver Kettle. So they've already made arrangements. They head to an inn known as the Lucky Dagger. And the reason they go there is because Aaron had mentioned that that's where he was going to be with his companions. And as I mentioned, they're trying to catch up with him. Um, because it's better if they see him and say, don't tell him who we are, before he sees them and says, oh, hey, look who it is. You know, it's not that they, he would, but they don't want to take chances, right? So they make their way towards the Lucky Dagger. It's a nice inn. It's clean. Not super busy, but pretty well. Getting rooms is very easy. Uh, going everywhere, they have the same two reactions they have everywhere they've ever gone in their entire lives together. Everybody is happy to see Artemis. Everybody is nervous when Darsh walks in the room. You know what I mean? You just imagine that. There are no other minotaurs he's seeing anywhere in this area. Also, not a lot of uh, elves either, so Artemis is the flip side of that. But again, when they mention, hey, we're mercenaries and he's my personal guard, a lot of times people are like, okay, that makes sense. That, that makes sense. Okay, she hired him personal guard. That looks like someone who's going to guard someone who looks like this. You know, still makes people nervous, but when you're like, hey, he and the Templar are my personal guard, 
people like, okay, all right, a really pretty elf, high-ranked cleric. Okay, we get that. That makes sense to us. Even though it's Darsh and Mercy that normally run the show. <laughs> so they go there and they get themselves a couple of rooms. They decide to take a couple days to just kind of hang around. Get a lay of the land. See what's happening. You know, hear what, find out what they can find out before they directly start going and looking for work. But first thing they do is they try to see if anyone's seen Aaron. Now the innkeeper here, and the people they talk to in the inn, says no one matching his description has come into the city. At least not that they've come through this inn, but there are several other inns. Although this is the one that Dandy said he would be going to, that he told Dandy he'd be going to. And they don't recognize him at all from his description. But that's also not unusual. He said he'd never been that far. He'd only heard that there was work, and that some of his allies had made arrangements to meet him up there. So, we're like, okay, well, maybe we beat him. Is the good hope. Bad hope is something happened to him on the way. Maybe he came through that area where the big harvester was before they did and weren't so lucky. Maybe he ran afoul of the drow or anything else. Or maybe he just got diverted. I mean, Lord knows if he's traveling through a town and he hears about an undead attack somewhere, he will go there first. He'll be like, yeah, these people have drow problems. This is undead. That's what I do. He will switch his target. And then catch up after the case. So it's possible he just got delayed from something like that. Because on merged worlds, sadly, undead issues are far, far more common than they were before the merge. Something to think about. So they're hanging out. No one's seen them. They do take the, that day after they get in the rooms and such. They go ahead and stable their horses. The inn itself doesn't have a stable, but there's one not far away that stables horses. They pay to leave them there while they're there. Have them be taken care of. They pay for a week of everything. Week of rooms. Because they're no longer going to be here, but paying for a week is a good deal. People like that. Oh, good. You're going to be here for a while. I can count on your money. And you're going to pay up front? Hell yeah. Welcome to my place. And they do make their way around town and hit up a couple of the other inns just in case. But everywhere they go, no one has seen any sign of Aaron. But it's just possible that they got there first. They are going to watch for him. But Dandy, more than the others, is a little concerned because she knows how dangerous a hunter's life can be. Um, and is concerned he may have gotten embroiled in, in something else. And even though she only met him the once, he was a really nice guy uh, and a fellow hunter, so she felt very akin to him. So, as they're bumbling around city, uh, they learn a couple few basic pieces of information. Again, the town mayor's name is Bowman Baker. Uh, his father, ready for this, was a baker. Um, uh, he was chosen by the Merchants Guild. He is very well-liked. By the people. He's very good at his job. Very friendly. Taxes are not high. Wait a minute. Trying to remember. Weren't there giants at the Battle of the Valley of Sacrifice? Yes, there were several giants at the Battle of the Valley of Sacrifice, Michael. That is correct. There were a few of them in there. Because if you'll remember, there was at least one or two of them that they had to fight when they were looking for the stones. When they found where Zarin. Remember Zarin had the... The, had taken over some of the remains of that army and was living in those woods to the north, which is south of Serenity. Um, they had, they came into a clearing where they had to fight a gi hill giants there as well. So yes, there were giants at the Battle of the Valley of Sacrifice. Great question and great memory. Buffy's here and she's very pleased at you. <laughs> I got you, sweetie. Um, but yes, Mayor Bowman, very well liked. 
Um, again, sees that people are treated fairly. There's no real issue with taxes because, again, city makes a lot of money. They don't have to tax much. The merchant guilds, which are really, like very many places, what runs the place, does so benevolently. Like, there's no real animosity between them or anything of that nature. Uh, it just goes along very, very well. Uh, but Bowman is like, even though he was chosen by the Merchants Guild, uh, the people really like him, and he's been mayor since before the merge. Are you okay, Buffy? I can't read the story when you're walking on the book. <laughs> they also can tell very quickly that the city is very well guarded. There are a lot of guards. Not an unusual amount of guards. Not like an army's worth. But there's obviously no shortage of them. And the description that they heard sounds very accurate. They've got more than enough guards to protect the city, but they don't have an army, per se, that they would send out to deal with the drow. Because historically, they haven't needed an army. To attack them is to draw the ire of all of those kingdoms that trade through them. One of those kingdoms decide to be a turd and jump in here, they're going to be targeted by the other five. So they're basically safe through neutrality. I mean, they're in the middle of this hub. Now, there were six city countries normally. Now there are only four because the merge didn't bring two of them. But still, business is good. It's on the second day that a messenger from the Merchants Guild comes to their inn and asks to speak with them. The merchants already have heard of the story about the hill giants. You can imagine. That stuff's going to pass through quickly, not just from Willem, but from all the people in the caravan, right? The caravan's like, oh, do you have any problem with drowning? No, but this happened. And then these people popped out. It's a minotaur and a cleric and a little short girl with the daggers and another little short girl with the bunk stick. And they did some mush on these things. They were just cutting their legs off and stabbing them in the feet and took them out. All we got one guy hurt. And then the cleric saved his life. Nobody died against two hill giants. That type of story is going to rip through the city. And it's not long before people pop in just in general to, you know, see who the strangers everyone talks about. You know, they walk in, poke their head in, see Darsh, and they're like, yeah, I believe it. And then they go home. <laughs> but in this situation, uh, they have a person from the Merchants Guild arrive. Now, it's just a courier, and he tells them that the merchant lords uh, have heard of what they've done in, the, in, in helping protect, and heard that they'd come to the city because of the drow problem. They heard the city was offering a reward, and they'd come here to see what was going on. Merchant lords hearing these two things, very happy about it. Here's a group of people showing up who want to help us, and they've already helped us very well and in a spectacular fashion against these hell giants. These are the type of people we need. So the merchant lords have asked that they come to the uh, merchant home, it's just a main building, all the merchant lords work out of there, uh, and meet with them to discuss the situation at hand. Um, they were going to take a little more time to look around and such, but I mean, this is an opening they needed. Uh, what they did worked. So the whole plan really worked better than they expected. So, like, sure, they're going to go to the guild house of the, of the merchant lords. So they go there that afternoon, and they're brought inside to a room and brought into a large room with a you know, big table, chairs, and there's several people there, and they're introduced to the four merchant lords that run this city. The city's mostly square. Not exactly square, but mostly square. Um, and imagine a plus sign in the middle of it is a main road. So it's four quarters. 
those quarters are basically the different merchant lords sections that they kind of oversee. Different types of businesses. They don't compete. They do that to keep everything neutral. They stay out of each other's business. Because um, there's a lot of different businesses to have. Everything comes through here. From food, to armor, to weapons, leather good, fish, jewelry, magic items. Anything you can think of comes to this place for resale. Plenty of pie for everybody. But they're introduced to the four merchant lords. Taryn McGregor, who's a human. Valley Silverleaf. An older half-elf. Brenda Stormshammer. Female dwarf. And Caden Black, who's another human. These four merchant lords and their businesses and or families are really the people who run the city. Again, I cannot stress enough, in a benevolent way. Nobody is, oh, they're taxing us, they're taking all our stuff. Everybody's happy with life here. It's outside here where the drow are, that's the problem. And the drow continuing to be a problem, it's only going to make things worse here. So it doesn't benefit any of them to treat anybody poorly. So they're there and they get a chance to speak with them. Of course, they'll say, we heard what you said from Willem, and we uh, had a chance to speak with him ourselves. He's guarded multiple caravans, and we have no reason to distrust what he said. Plus, the caravan itself, there were more than enough people who corroborated the story down to the smallest detail that we have no doubt what we heard was true. And you're exactly what we were looking for when we sent out word that we needed help. I mean, I won't lie, it'd be great if there was a hundred of you, but we'll, we'll take the five of you for now, sure. Willem has spoken highly of them, uh, and everything of their story they believe. We heard your merchants, got a cleric who's doing good with you, that's awesome. A cleric, that's great. They do mention that several other groups, merchants and thing, had come through here previously and have attempted to help. Some failed, some turned down the job immediately once they learned exactly what was entailed with it and how much work it was going to be, and some went to deal with the... Uh, drow themselves and never came back. Of course, they ask the question. They describe him, but they're like, no, we've never met anyone like this gentleman Aaron that you mentioned, but definitely we'll send a word. If he comes through, we'll get him to you. If you've got more allies that are like you that are coming to help, hell yeah, we'll help get him in here. Again, we want this drow problem fixed. If you can, if you got friends, man, tell us what they look like where they are. We will send everybody to look for them and bring them here for you. So that's cool. There's, at this point, no sign of him yet. So, if I said all attempts to reason with the drow have failed. Uh, none of them have ever personally seen or met with any of the drow because they live in the cities. They're merchant lords, but they rarely leave the cities themselves. Though some of their uh, minions have, have had dealings with them. Not like up close, but fought against them and different things and so on. Um, some of the people that work for them have. Again, they say that they don't leave the city, but they and they have absolutely no idea how many drow there were. At first, from the first reports, it seemed like just a small group. A few animals got to stolen here, some crops taken or whatever. They thought maybe just a couple handfuls of them passing through. They thought nothing of it, told their people just, you know, stay inside, avoid them at all costs. Then it got worse. More and more farms got caught. Then caravans start getting tagged. Smaller ones, then larger ones. And to the point that they're like, there's way too many to be two handfuls. They're estimating their group has to be at least in the 50s to 100s. Uh, Michael says, so then it isn't so odd to have giants and drow working together for the group's knowledge and history. That's, that's possible. Um, in that situation, I would say the 
combining or the force that brought everything together was more Nylat Firemoon because there were orcs and goblins and trolls and all sorts of things. He just attracted all sorts of minions of evil with promise of treasure and power. Um, so they would have been drawn to Nylat specifically, not so much each other. That's not to say that a relationship could not have been made at that point. A allyship or friendship could not have then grown from the two races. So it's possible, Michael. That's correct. So, uh, let's see. So at this point, they're thinking there's got to be at least 50 to 100 of them from what they're hearing. Uh, and while they've heard that the caravans have killed at least a few, no bodies have been recovered, and it's hard to tell if that's had any effect on their numbers. There's a very large map that they have that they pull out and they show to everyone. It shows the area of everything. The city, the kingdoms in the area that they were t- I was talking about earlier, the mountains, the, the small... It's like a mountain jut that sticks up in the north east where the drow are supposedly living in the caves up there from what they could tell um, the caves themselves really didn't have anything of value that they towns ever known about they've been there forever even before the merge um, and the land very close to it was not very hospitable for farming and stuff you'd have to come a good ways away from the mountains to reach any good farmland um, so they didn't really ever had a reason to go up there and mess with them there so if the drow had just moved in there and stayed there it probably wouldn't have been that big of a problem Here's the issue at hand. This is why they're glad they're here. Because not only is this drow a problem, but this drow is a problem specifically now more than anything else. Because in 10 days, one of the largest caravans they've ever had is going to be coming from one of the kingdoms to the east. They're putting all their eggs in that one basket and coming through as guarded as they can. The other kingdoms have let it be known that they're tired of having to spend all this extra money on guards and such to deliver their goods to trade in this city. And they're starting to think, even though it's longer to go around, it might start be actually be safer and cheaper to start dealing with each other directly instead of using this city. Star's Reach can't have that. If this caravan is attacked, more importantly, if it effectively gets sacked, They're going to lose trade with that kingdom. And if one kingdom drops trade, it won't be long before the others do as well. Which opens them up to two problems. One, complete lack of income, because all their jobs is on trading. And two, they're no longer protected through neutrality anymore. They're just another place that's pretty wealthy in between a bunch of other places. So it is imperative that this caravan make it to Star's Reach successfully. Even better if they have no problems. But even if they are attacked, they have to successfully make it here with their goods in a way that shows we're taking care of this. So Star's Reach is handling the security. Willem did not get that contract. But they are handling the security. The merchant lords themselves are putting all their eggs in this one basket to prove that they can still make this a safe place. If they can deal with the drow before those 10 days are up, the better chance they have of maintaining their active and normal neutrality business. They offer them a huge sum of money. Not compared to how much money they already have, but to their cover story, to a group of merchants and such coming through, they're being offered a small fortune. And I mean a fortune. Like 
enough to have gotten Serenity started or Darsh to start building his island. They're offering a lot of money. So it's a little odd that that's that big of a prize and there aren't more people here trying to get it. But at the same time, they didn't know how much was being offered until they got here. And this big caravan issue they're just being told about seems to be a relatively new development. And they've been traveling for a month and a half, two months at this point, to get here. So it's possible that the price has gone up since they, they started this journey. So the Drake, as I said, are to the east, just a smidge north. Um, so it's more likely that that's the side that's going to get attacked. That's the side the caravan's coming from. And it's the side that's had the most issues. So that's where they're worried about. Now, they offer him a bunch of money. And, of course, our heroes accept it. They're like, well, yeah, we'll, we'll see what we can do. Uh, oh, let's see. John Biden, thank you for the Sky Factory series. And we should test. Thank you very much. No way, bud. I appreciate that. Thank you for coming by. Thank you. <laughs> they, uh, talking about... So that's the, the party goes, yeah, we'll take it for that price. We got basically 10 days before the caravan comes into these lands where they'll be in danger. Um, so that gives them basically 10 days to deal with this drow issue. It's not a lot of time, to be honest. And if it is a considerable force of drow, it might be more than they can deal with. But what they're thinking is, if that's the case, they do have different types of allies, and even if they could find out where the drow are and could bring a considerable force, Willem and his guards or something, they might be able to do something to save this caravan and the city's problem. Or at least do enough damage to drive the drow back underground. So they agree to accept that. They're given some information. Freedom of the city. Told of several different people that might be able to help them. Uh, specifically, there's a half-elf named Quent Titanfoe who has a small business in the city, uh, who is the only person to survive one of the drow attacks. Uh, and he might be able to help shine a light on uh, kind of what their situation is as well. So they thank them for that, and they say that, you know, they'll keep up with the merchant guilds, let them know what we find out. But odds are they'll have to leave the city within the next day or so if they are going to go and try to actually find the drow or deal with them in that regard. The merchants offer to provide them with pretty much any supply they need. Basically... Go to these certain stores, tell them what you need, and it'll be given. They're going to do that a little bit because they have to maintain their cover story. At this point, no one's given any hints that they know who they really are. But they don't need much because they're not, they don't need it, and they don't want to take money and stuff from people they don't need. So they are now hired on to find these drow, and they have 10 days to deal with this drow threat before the eastern caravan comes through the land. And if they haven't, the city may be in much more danger than it has been for many centuries. But that is where we're going to end for today. We are right at 10.30, and the time worked out really, really well. I want to apologize uh, for those of you who may have been looking for last uh, two week ago's episode. I went to check it today. I submitted it for some reason. It never loaded to iTunes and Spotify. I apologize. I did not know that it didn't load for some reason. I just found that out right before this stream started. So um, I will have that done tomorrow. I'll try to get this one up there both at the same time. So I apologize if you're waiting for that on iTunes or Spotify. I didn't know it wasn't there. I'll get it up as quickly as I can. Uh, but again, thank you all very much for coming by and listening to my story today. I appreciate it. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, again, I know it's a lot of prep stuff going on, but uh, I'm hoping you enjoy where the story goes. Uh, hopefully some of the new little nuggets of things that popped out that would be kind of interesting. 
Hopefully you'll like that. But uh, yeah, hopefully you guys had a good time. Um, so the next episode of Merge Works, Merge Worlds will be two weeks from today. Next Thursday will be Behind the Dice, um, where we're going to be talking about magic items and artifacts of Merge Worlds, discussing some of the how the magic item artifacts I've created work, uh, as well as some of the magic items and artifacts that I have that I've never actually uh, talked about in the story because they only had them for a small period of time or I've never given to anyone yet. I got a book of magic items and artifacts I've created I've yet to use in the story, but I've got them for when I do. Uh, some of those I'll talk to you guys about today. You'll hear about some of these for the very first, or not today, next Thursday. You get to hear about that. So if you like magic items and artifacts and stuff, or your DM looking for some cool ideas for magic items and artifacts, we'll be talking about that next Thursday. So feel free to swing on by and uh, potentially uh, people, if there's specific stats you'd like on some of these things, special abilities, I can get that stuff put on the website or somewhere where you could download it if you want to use any of those items specifically. Uh, Dark Wolf says, listening while doing a bunch of stuff at work helps me sane when I'm working. Well, I'm glad that I could be that voice for you. I understand I have things I listen to when I should be working. <laughs> Thank you again for coming. If you enjoyed yourself today, please remember to click like, whether you're watching this today, tomorrow, or 10 years down the road. It would be awesome if you would, as well as if you hit subscribe, so that way you can hang out for all of our videos, streams, and D&D stories. Uh, you can also join our... Um, uh, Discord channel. Uh, if you go to my website, onlydraven.com, there's a button at the top. You can click on, take you right in. A lot of great people in there chatting about. I got the Merged Worlds thread in there. I talk to Merged Worlds when people have questions and stuff. Feel free to hit me up. It's open to anyone. Uh, while you're at my website, if you click the little characters uh, tab at the top, you'll get to see all the minis of all these different characters I've talked about. Uh, so you can see what some of these people look like that I've talked about uh, you may have not had a chance to in the past. All right? Thank you all for hanging with me. Love every one of you. And I appreciate you coming by. And hopefully, I will see you again very, very soon for some more Merged Worlds. All right? You folks have yourselves a wonderful day.